Howdy, everyone. <clears throat> Sorry about that. I just had a coughing fit right before the beginning. <clears throat> Welcome. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. My name is Carter. I'm your host. This is a series <clears throat> we like to do every Wednesday evening, or at least as many Wednesday evenings as we can. <clears throat> it's a series for thinkers. So if you have ADHD, <clears throat> probably won't probably won't enjoy this one. Uh, if you like to evade thinking about hard issues, probably won't enjoy this either. <clears throat> All right. I'm sorry. Today I'm a little bit discombobulated. Uh, I didn't do my normal show prep, which I'm going to talk about <clears throat> why. This is going to be a little bit of a show where I'm winging it. And the reason for that is uh, <clears throat> I was kind of sideswiped today, not in a car, cognitively sideswiped. And I got pretty angry today, so uh, I was dealing with some stuff. I'm going to talk about that because I think it's actually relevant. Um, welcome to everyone in chat, by the way. Uh, I'm getting hail, Carter. Now, isn't that like a was it? Isn't hail a thing that the the cool comics people do? I'm not. I'm too much of a nerd. You don't have to hail me. You can just say hey. But hey, uh, <laughs> hey, people in chat. Anyway, so <clears throat> yeah, a little bit discombobulated. Angry. I'm going to talk about why I was angry because I think it's important for everyone. Um, and I'm going to talk about uh, apologizing for groomers, which is a thing that is now happening. And um, we're going to talk about popularity contests. I'm going to talk about the NATO and TikTok article I was going to talk about last time but ran out of time. And maybe we'll do some transhumanism stuff. So there we go. Uh, Foulball Production says it's a nerdrotic thing. Okay. Thank you. Anyway, first, if you're new to Unsafe Space, welcome. Uh, in addition to Dangerous Thoughts, we've got a lot of different series. Earlier today, I think Keith uh, Bissett, Keith the Hat Guy, did a Rebel Civics episode. We have uh, on Tuesdays, uh, almost every, not every Tuesday, but almost every Tuesday, Alex Maselli does a 451 Degrees episode. We've got uh, Narrative Dissonance, which is a show about what the mainstream media is trying to deceive us about, which is a panel of journalists we have every week, every Monday. Um, at, I think that's moving actually to 2 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and tomorrow evening, Thursday evening, we have a token minority report. That used to be on Fridays. It's moving to Thursday evenings. That's with Beverly. And there might be a Friday the 13th episode of something or other this Friday. I'm not sure. <clears throat> that's a Beverly thing as well, but maybe. All right. Also, before we start, if you haven't shared any unsafe speak space content with, with people in a while, go do that. Uh, make sure you're subscribed on all the channels or whatever channels you're watching on. Consider heading over to unsafespace.com to support us. You can throw fiat currency our way or some crypto if you want. And you can get on our Discord server and get a mug and your name in the credits and all this cool stuff. All right. Oh, one last thing I want to say um, to, to people in chat especially, or if you're just hanging around and you're not in chat yet, you might want to jump in. I would like to start trying to make this show more um, responsive to what you guys want to talk about, uh, rather than just me saying, here's stuff that I'm interested in. Sometimes you guys are interested in stuff or know about stuff or have questions about stuff that I'm just not on my radar. So, uh, if you want to talk about stuff, please let me know in chat. Uh, Hey, judge lot, judge lot just showed up into chat. Okay. <clears throat> let me tell you why I'm just, I'm in a mood today. Let me tell you why. Why I was angry earlier. I guess I'm it's subsided, I guess. <clears throat> Before I go through the story, 
I'm going to preface by saying I am stuck here in California for the moment. I don't want to be here. My wife doesn't want to be here. Uh, I don't want to get into the details of why. Not every detail of my family life is, is for public consumption. But we're stuck here for the moment. <clears throat> we don't want to be here. Um, and if you knew the reasons, you, it was, it's the right decision to be to stay here. So, um, so anyway, we're, we're stuck here. So we're in California, dealing with California. But like most people... Um, I'm not constantly, even even though I'm, you might say, somewhat skeptical of state power, you know, just a little bit, uh, I'm not running around wondering to myself, gee, I wonder how the state is going to try and insert itself in between me and my daughter. What are all the ways? I should I should look for ways and see, be on, be on the lookout for that. It just doesn't cross my mind normally, even though... Perhaps it should. So my daughter's been sick on and off for a couple of weeks. My older daughter, who's 12, <clears throat> she's been sick on and off for a couple of weeks. There's been something going around. My wife had it for a little while. I had it. I, I, I'm still not totally recovered. Um, <clears throat> It's not COVID. Uh, I don't think. Maybe it was. I don't know. I don't think. But she, what she has now isn't COVID. So she's been sick on and off. And one of the things we did while she was sick and I was sick because we watched the old Donna Reed show. Do you guys remember the old Donna Reed show? When I was growing up, I wasn't really allowed to watch much TV. I mean, some, but my parents were pretty strict about television. And one of the things that we, <clears throat> I was allowed to consume was uh, there was a network. I guess this network is probably still around. It was called Nickelodeon. And after 8 PM, they, it changed into Nick at night and they played old reruns of old stuff like uh Car 54, Where Are You, and My Three Sons, and Andy Griffith. And one of the shows they played was this Donna Reed show. And this was a show that was made in the maybe late 50s to mid 60s. Obviously, it's, you know, idyllic by their standards. Um, and uh, it, the show is based, uh, we don't have to get into the show, but the, the show is a family in suburbia somewhere i forget the you know the name of the town but it's family in a suburbia and the dad is a doctor and this is back in the day when doctors would make house calls so one of the recurring themes in the show uh, the dad's office is actually uh part of the house so they have a house and the dad's like there's a separate part of the house where the dad and he's a pediatrician so where more moms come in and they bring their kids and the and the the dad, you know, does the doctorly things, prescri prescribes stuff, whatever. And uh, so that's that's kind of a, a, a thing in the show is that the dad's a doctor and he he's constantly getting interrupt interrupted there. Sit down for dinner or they want to go on a vacation or whatever. And, and there's some uh, emergency in the neighborhood or some uh, maybe hypochondriac mom or whatever who wants him to come over and and check out his kid or, or check out their kid or whatever. And so he, you know, picks up his black bag and he goes over and, and does that. So, um, so that's, that's what's going on. And the reason I'm, the reason I'm bringing this up is because what I'm about to talk about is the healthcare system. So, uh, Dawn in chat says, I used to watch way too much TV, but missed that show. I like it. I mean, it's a cheesy show. I really, really like. I, I like the show. I'm, I guess I'm cheesy. It's a, it's a cheesy show. Um, and my daughter likes it because, uh, even though it's, it's idealized, you can tell by what a culture idealizes and makes, uh, 
like presents as as wholesome what they think is good and it's it's an interesting viewpoint into the past um also she thinks it's weird that the kids in the show are the age of her grandparents now so anyway um you know house calls in modern time they don't make sense right i mean there's too much equipment i mean for one thing doctor's time is expensive they would have to you know go around that takes takes time also there's a lot of equipment you can't do a lot of modern testing without you know you can't take x-rays you can't have a portable x-ray machine or do a whole bunch of stuff or a lab you can't get lab work done so it makes sense to have maybe not as many house call i guess you could still do it a little bit and and technology has made uh a, has has modified that a little bit i'm a big uh fan of one medical which i don't know if it's all over the country but it's a thing that you pay for um that i do that's like uh it's pretty cheap. It's, it's like a couple hundred bucks a year. I don't know what it is. So it's pretty cheap. And you get an app and um, basically there's doctors kind of on call all the time. It's much more customer focused. Um, but the thing that's really been missing, the thing that I that I miss about that Donna Reed era, and, and it was right around that era, this stuff started to change a lot. Um, is the doctors the, the 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 customer relationship? If you if you watch the show, the the doctors very well. Alex Stone, Doctor Alex Stone is his name. He's very aware that these people are his customers. Like there's an episode where uh, another pediatrician opens an office and they kind of joke about you know being in competition. He's very aware that um, the moms predominantly are the customers because they're the ones taking the kid to the doctor. Um, there's, there's shows about how he has to like treat them well and be careful about what he says because they're his customers. And so he's very aware. Um, this is why he's on call all the time. He's got a very close personal relationship with all of his patients. And I'm not saying tech is, is replacing that, but there are attempts to try and do that a little bit where you can do telemedicine and, and maybe have a doctor that you see regularly and try and at least buy some of that relationship back in some weird way. Um, but the reason that we don't have that anymore, uh, apart from, you know, the, the, I don't want to say this. I don't want to, you can't blame the government for everything. I don't think the government's responsible for why we don't have house calls anymore. There's some economic reasons and tech reasons why that is, which I just mentioned. But I think the government is largely responsible for why we don't have a personal relationship with our doctors anymore and why that customer relationship, why it doesn't feel like, um, like a customer, like you're a customer being treated by someone who, who values you as a customer. Um, and, uh, yeah, someone says house calls might come back because technically, technically, technically it's making them smaller. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe some stuff gets smaller. I don't know, but there are virtual house calls are coming back. I guess is my point. Anyway, a lot of people don't realize that, um, I don't think they realize how much the government really, really, really screwed up healthcare. And there's a long history. I could choose a bunch of different events to talk about um, that where the government made made a step uh, in the wrong direction. But I just want to talk about one one in particular because I think a lot of people know about more recent ones like Obamacare, and people don't care about older ones like uh, in the early part of the 20th century when um, medical licensing and stuff happened. To, uh, you know, people. People don't like that as much, you know, doesn't mean as much to them, although I think it's impactful. The one I want to talk about is um, the 1942 Stabilization Act. And this was an amendment to the Emergency Price Control Act of 1942. That's right, Americans. I don't know if you know, 
there was an act in history called the Emergency Price Control Act of 1942. I'm just going to read you the Wikipedia entry because, you know, it's pretty good. Uh, just a portion of it. <clears throat> the act authorized and directed the president, who, by the way, at the time was, you know, the Soviet Union had Stalin. We had FDR. Two sides of the same coin. Um, all right. The act authorized and directed the president to issue an order stabilizing prices, wages, and salaries to the level they had they had had as of September 15th, 1942, and to additional issue additional regulations. Blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> On April 8th, 1943, President Franklin Roosevelt issued executive order 9328, which was a hold the line on further increases in prices affecting the cost of living and increases in wages and salaries. I just, I want to, there's a million reasons why you should know this. Everyone should be aware of this. Uh, and this kind of, this kind of stuff that's been going on historically in the U.S. Whenever anyone says, capitalism failed because of that, bit. This has this is the the fact that that at one point in our history, recent history, we authorized the executive branch to hold prices. I mean, prices are the the the, the fundamental functioning mechanism of capitalism. You can't have capitalism. And price controls. That's it's 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 he completely destroyed the the capitalist system. That's what that does. It completely completely obliterates it. And we're still feeling the repercussions of this now because what happened at the time, how this relates to health insurance. When you freeze prices, you freezing wages as well. Companies, of course, are competing for employees. But the government, the government is getting in the way and saying, well, I understand, Bob, that you want to work for Henry and you're willing to be paid. I don't know what a wage was back then. You're willing to be paid $5 a day. I understand that you're willing to do that and he's willing to do that. But, but. There's a tyrant in Washington by the name of FDR who has issued an order that you must pay what you paid this other time. Like you can't change the price. So what happens when you have this problem? You can't attract the people that you want. You can't offer more wages. You get stuck as a business person. And you need, you know, obviously, you need people to run your business. People die. People move jobs, whatever. You, you, business expands, right? So what do you do? What do you what would you guys do in chat if here you are? Here you are and you're running a business, you can't hire people because you're not allowed you're willing to pay them a certain amount. You're not allowed to. Cuz FDR has decreed you can't. What do you do? And you can't raise your prices of anything either by the way. You're you're kind of stuck. It's this it's the most moronic typically leftist view of how business and the economy works. If we could just freeze everything the way it is right now and nothing changes, everything will be great. That doesn't where you can't freeze. It's like, it's like if you freeze a living organism, it dies. The economy is a living organism. You can't freeze it. 
But that's what these morons tried to do. They tried to freeze the economy. What would you do as a business owner? How would you attract people? What would you do? I'll tell you what people did do. They said, well, turns out health insurance doesn't count as income and we don't have to pay payroll taxes on it. And if we give it to people, they don't have to pay taxes on that as their income. So we don't have to pay payroll taxes. They don't have to pay uh, income tax and it doesn't count. It's not part of the Stabilization Act. It doesn't count. So, well, I can only pay you the four bucks an hour, whatever, four bucks a day, whatever the price. I can only pay you the old price. I'm not allowed to offer you more money, but I can offer you health insurance for free. How about health insurance as part of your job? I'll offer health insurance. That is where the origin. Have you ever thought about why the hell is health insurance tied to your job? Does it make, like, is your car insurance tied to your job? If you work at Starbucks and you quit because you got a job, you know, somewhere better that you wanted to work, you quit Starbucks and you got a job at, uh, I don't know, you got a job at the local, <clears throat> I was going to say local newspaper, but they don't exist anymore. You got a job at the local online BuzzFeed office, whatever it is, right? You you quit Starbucks, you get your job, you're like, yeah, I got a new thing. Does your do you have to worry about car insurance? Are you like, oh crap, I don't have car insurance now. I don't know how I'm gonna get to work. I'm gonna I need I need some kind of holdover car insurance. I need some like gap car insurance, and then the car insurance comes with my new come my old job of car insurance was Geico, but my new car insurance is progressive. Like no one does that. Your car insurance is yours because you have a car. You want to insure it. Well, they force you to insure it, but you have a car, you insure the car. It's your own relationship with the insurance company. Why is your healthcare not like that? Because of F, Fing DR. That's why. It's because they reacted to this. The companies reacted to this. And the only one of the only rational ways they could, they started to package health insurance with with their compensation packages. And that didn't go away. That just got more and more and more complex. They got more embedded and more tied into your uh, your companies. And now, I mean, if you look at Obamacare, uh, there is rules. You can't have, if your company is a certain size, you must provide healthcare. You must. That's all the government. That has nothing to do with the free market. It has nothing to do with any kind of supply and demand. This is the government's strong-arming, manipulating, and distorting a free market. And things have just gotten worse. I'm not going to get into the details of the healthcare system, but look, 80 years later, we've now have a medical industrial complex. We've got big pharma and huge health insurance and entire medical community and, and Medicaid and Medicare and the FDA and all these giant organizations and NGOs and, and for-profit companies and government organizations all in bed together in this medical industrial complex controlling whether or not you can go buy prescription cold medication or controlling whether you have to get health insurance from your employer or you can find it elsewhere. And they've and the, the price of health insurance has skyrocketed. The quality has gone down. It will continue to go down. And it will continue to cost more. Because socialism sucks. And it's socialized medicine. That's what it is. All right. 
So that's even not it. That's not why I'm even angry. So, <laughs> so here we are. We've been watching Donna Reed. Now you guys understand uh, partly why we don't have relationships with our doctors anymore because they don't give a crap. You're not really the customer and whatever. So <clears throat> we decide, look, she's got to go to the doctor. This has been an on and off thing for a couple weeks. She's got to go to the doctor. Well, I go to set up. So we call the doctor. I said, well, okay, well, you have to do. <laughs> I didn't have the app. I had to download the app. There's, a, there's an app now because this is now, it's separate from the one medical thing. Like, okay, there's an app. You got to, okay, so I download the app. Okay, now you got to set up this thing on the app and they wanted to do a remote visit. It, we, we ended up going in today, which took a long time. doesn't matter. Uh, you got to set up the app. So I set up the app and do all this. And uh, and I say, okay, I want to set an appointment up for my daughter. Well, uh, you need her in the room. I said, what do you mean I need her in the room? I mean, you know, I'm a relatively competent adult. I can answer questions about her. I don't, what do I need her in the room for? She's laying in bed and not feeling well. Well, she's 12. Yes. Yes, she's 12. Thank you for reminding me. Well, there's a rule about teenagers. <clears throat> Notice, by the way, 12 isn't a teen. I didn't even argue. So what are you talking about? Well, um, she has to have her own account on the app. And she has to be here to set it up. I need to talk to her. Really? Yeah, it's the law. All right. So I'm like, all right. So I go get her. She comes in the room. She doesn't have a phone, so she's using my phone. On, like, the app's on my phone anyway. Um, and the person starts to ask her questions and stuff. And sometimes, you know, she's not feeling well. Plus, she's like, thinks this is weird that she's got to be talking to this lady on the other end of the phone. And so I, like, help out a couple times. I say something, and the lady interrupts me. I, excuse me, sir. Excuse me. I know you're trying to help, but I need to be speaking to your daughter directly. what the fuck, right? Like, what the fuck is this? So she has her set up an account and a password, which she's not supposed to tell me. But of course, I make her tell me and we have, I mean, come on. So, so she's supposed to set up, so she sets up this whole thing. <clears throat> so she's got her account and then we're able to go, you know, we ended up going to the doctor anyway. So then, of course, after this, I'm like, what the hell is going on? Someone says, you want to see real socialized medicine in America? Just look at the VA hospitals. Greg says this. Yeah, I've heard horror stories. And um, I've sp I, I spoke to a friend yesterday who <clears throat> has a long-term autoimmune disease. And she was saying uh, since she's been diagnosed, which was kind of pre-Obamacare, she's just watched. She, she's, it's palpable how horrible it's how how bad it's become, how bad her health care has become. Um, and how they don't just care about her and it's a factory and they're like pushing stuff. It's just, she said, it's, she said, it's just like the Vax stuff. They just, they're not listening. They just push it. And like the end anyway. So I'm wondering what the heck's going on. Why, why is this lady making my 12 year old do this? I don't want to get into it with a lady because, you know, she was obnoxious, but I knew, I knew there was something else behind this. This wasn't just the healthcare provider. So I found this, I looked this up. See if you can see this. 
right here. We're going to, ah, this makes me angry just to see California minor consent and confidentiality laws. I can't, I can't believe I didn't know. I mean, okay. There's three columns. The first column is minors of any age may consent to the, and there's a list of things. And then there's the law or details on second column. And then in the third column, it says may slash must the healthcare provider inform a parent about this care or disclose related medical information to them. Now, for me, a chart like this would be, are they a child? Yes. There might be an exception for like, do you think they're being abused by the parent? And then no, they don't. Have to. But like, other than that, it would be like, are they a minor? Yes. Therefore, disclose to parent and get parents permission. That's That would be the rational chart. That's not California's chart. <clears throat> Pregnancy. The law, a minor may consent to medical care related to the prevention or treatment of pregnancy, except sterilization. Except, I guess, for gender reassignment. Um, <clears throat> The healthcare provider is not permitted to inform a parent or legal guardian without the minor's consent. That's true for both pregnancy and contraception. It's not for 12 and older, which is bad enough. All minors, all minors, the healthcare provider is not permitted by the state of California to tell me if my daughter is pregnant or on contraception. I, I can't, I mean, I suspected this kind of stuff, but, I, you know, I wasn't a parent of a teenager before. I just wasn't paying attention. Why would I pay attention to this? You've got to be kidding me. <clears throat> You'll like this one, guys. <clears throat> what do you want to guess? I'll let Chad guess. Abortion. What do you think the rules are on abortion? You guessed it. A minor may consent to an abortion without parental consent. The health care provider is not permitted to inform the parent or legal guardian without the minor's consent. Oh, that's nice. It's just, it's so infuriating. I mean, if you're not a parent, maybe you're not as infuriated as I am. But if you are a parent, you understand how I'm going insane right now. And I want to shoot someone. All right. I'm going to skip over some stuff that's semi-reasonable about sexual assault services, blah, blah, blah. But, and I'm going to skip over some emergency medical stuff. But I'm going to get to some other stuff that's just also weird. This has nothing to do with sex. Uh, and this is for minors 12 years of age or older. This is how this is how my daughter got looped into this, minors 12 years of age or older. Because obviously <laughs> her sickness the past two weeks is unrelated to sexual activity because I'm not a shitty fucking parent. Okay. So <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to swear, but really? Uh, all right. Minors 12 years of age or older. Infectious Contagious Communicable Diseases, Diagnosis, and Treatment. A minor, this is the law, a minor who is 12 years of age or older 
and who may have come into contact with an infectious, contagious, or communicable disease may consent to medical care related to diagnosis or treatment of the disease if the disease, blah, 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 is required below. Okay. Also for STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, preventive di care, diagnostic treatment, a minor 12 years or older may, 12 years or older, who may have come into contact with a sexually transmitted disease may consent to medical treatment, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> for both these cases, just regular infectious diseases and sexual transmitted diseases. The healthcare provider is not permitted to inform a parent or a legal guardian without the minor's consent. So my daughter, who's 12, I don't know. Maybe she's got, who knows what she has. She could have, I don't think she should have chicken pox at this point, but because I think that she was vaccinated for that, but whatever. She could have anything. She could have uh, mono. She could have Epstein-Barr, right? I'm surprised how she got it, but whatever. She could have anything. I can't know without her consent. Thanks, Gavin Newsom. I don't think he was responsible for this. California probably did it on their own. Just, just to round it out a little bit, <clears throat> AIDS, HIV, care, testing, diagnosis, treatment. You guessed it. Minors 12 and older can consent, and healthcare providers are not permitted to inform the parent. Rape services. Rape. I, I can't believe the word says rape services. That sounds like a dystopian, horrible thing. I think what they mean is like rape, recovery, aftercare, whatever services. Sometimes I feel like the state actually means rape services, though. Rape services for minors 12 and over. A minor who's 12 years age and older who is alleged to have been raped may consent to medical care, blah, blah, blah. Healthcare provider is not permitted. I'm not shitting you. The healthcare provider is not permitted to inform a parent or legal guardian without the minor's consent. There's also a section here for 12 and older for intimate partner violence. I don't understand why that's needed for 12-year-olds because they talk specifically about sexual relationships and spousal relationships. Um... But uh, the, the healthcare permitter, provider is also not permitted to disclose information to a parent or legal guardian for those cases. I don't know how those cases happen. I don't want to know. Um, and then just, again, I guess just the end here, outpatient mental health services. In this one, I guess it's slightly better. The healthcare provider has to involve the parent unless the healthcare provider doesn't want to. And then, then they don't have to. Um, so that's the rule. That's the rule in California. All right. I, by the way, Judge Lott, I see your super chat. I'm going to, I'll get to it in a minute. Okay, so from this, we can conclude two things, at least. One is the state of California really doesn't want you as a parent to have anything to do with policing the sexual behavior of your child at all. That's very clear, right? Pregnancy, contraception, abortion, even rape stuff. Like, nope, you cannot be involved. Can't, no. You're not, you have nothing to do with it. 
And by the way, the pregnancy, contraception, abortion, as I mentioned, any age. So anything to do with sex and your kid, you're not allowed to be involved. You're not allowed to know what the hell's going on. So that's one conclusion, clearly. The second conclusion is they want to exclude you from medical decisions generally as early as possible. Like 12 is pretty early, right? Um, and I just want to clarify. I'm going to talk about the state assuming the role of, of parenthood here a little bit. I view when you have when you have a healthcare system that's so enmeshed with the government, when they're so inseparable, which they are at this point, I view healthcare providers as agents of the state because they are, for all intents and purposes, they are agents of the state. Maybe the state can't call, maybe that, you know, maybe they, uh, the, the attorney general can't call and be like, hey, give me this person's medical records. Yeah, okay, they can't do that. But if they want to enforce anything, they just have it enforced through the healthcare system. Like they can do basically whatever they want. They don't need, you know, bureaucrats in the DMV don't need access to your medical records to do whatever they want. They just tie it into help. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this healthcare providers are agents for the state effectively. That's what they are. <clears throat> I'm going to pull up a couple super chats actually before I, I'm going to lose track of them if I don't do it. So I'm going to pull them up and then we'll continue. The first one is from, uh, from judge lot. I don't know why it's not letting me add it to the feed for some reason, uh, and put it on screen. I don't know. It's just dream yard issue, but I can read it. Um, and it says, but Carter, it's 20 bucks. Thank you, Judge Lott. And it says, but Carter, if the government doesn't get involved, who will stop big insurance from withholding payouts? And who will stop big medicine from overcharging? Because that never happens under the system we currently have. Right, yeah, exactly. Right. It's just the idea that you would take the DMV as an ideal and be like, we need this for other industries, and especially important ones like healthcare. Yeah, that's, that's what we need. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Vicious Optimist says, uh, been slacking due to work and wavering level of optimism and a wavering level of optimism, which means I must entrench. And so should we all. <laughs> Thank you, vicious optimist. <laughs> all right. So all right, let's continue. So we can come to those conclusions. They don't want you to have anything to do with the sexual behavior of your child, and they want to exclude you from medical decisions as early as possible. Those are the two conclusions that we can kind of easily draw. My question then was why? All right. And as I mentioned, 12 isn't a teen, right? We, I think there's something pernicious about including 12. I think there's something pernicious there by making teen include 12. And I think we think of teens as older and more mature, like a teenager. Sometimes you think of teenagers as 18, 18 is legally an adult, right? Um, but I think by including 12-year-olds in there, they're setting a precedent that they can kind of call teen whatever they want. So they can, like if 13 isn't the cutoff for calling someone a teenager, what is that? Like if, if you can go back to 12, why not 11, 10, 9, 8? Like there's not really a, I think they're blurring that line intentionally. I'm not 100% sure, but it's a weird thing. That's just a side note. But the question is, why are they doing this? And I think 
you know, to be fair, I think the motivation is tough. The actual motivation of most of the people who are probably involved in writing this legislation or approving this legislation and executing it probably their motivation a is it's you know it's hard to say but probably they here's what i imagine happened they probably cherry picked some stories of how uh emotionally and even physically abusive parents were going to react to miscreant teens right um they they maybe they Imagine them painting this cartoonishly malevolent caricature of a tyrannical parent, like the mom and Carrie or like this, you know, like a Bible thumping dad who beats his kids or whatever. Like the thing people left the left are afraid of and like the, the, the worst cases of people who are religious or or whatever and like and really kind of tyrannical. So they probably this is what I imagine happened. They probably painted these 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 caricatures. And then they tugged at the heartstrings of all the, the liberals and said, well, we have to protect these poor kids, these poor kids. If they get caught with condoms or whatever, they, the dad will beat them and like we have to protect them. It's our job, right? That's probably what they did um, because they always weaponize empathy. That's what they do. So they probably trotted out some cases like that, cherry picked some cases or just made some stuff up and, and, and painted these characters. And they got people to feel a certain way. And, of course, feeling isn't thinking. This is precisely why you can't uh, make policy decisions or other important decisions about how you, you know, based on how you feel. Uh, so they felt bad for these kids. They felt they needed to protect these kids. And so they were like, yes, we absolutely, we shouldn't have to tell the parents, the poor child, right? I'm sure that's how it went. I'm sure. Um <sighs> You know, but obviously when you make policy decisions, you need to think about the precedent you're setting uh, when you agree to these kind of things, not just about how to make yourself feel better in the moment. And most people, uh, most people, especially on the left, but also sometimes on the right, are just making themselves feel better. I feel outraged about this. I feel empathy for this. Therefore, we need a law. That's that's probably what happened. Some My guess is they didn't run around saying, Here's the cool consequences. Here's the statist authoritarian consequences. Here's the dystopian consequences that will result. Want to pass the law? That's probably not how it went. I imagine it went, you know, the other way, weaponizing the empathy. Now, maybe, maybe some people behind the scenes knew exactly what they were going to accomplish with this, but let's talk about what they accomplished with this. What'd they accomplish? What do these laws accomplish? Because that's more important than what their motives were. I don't give a crap about motives usually. This is why I don't care about like when people are like, oh, it's a hate crime. I'm like, well, I don't, is it a crime? It's a crime or it's not a crime. I don't really care why you did the thing. You did the thing, right? You, you did, you know, you murder me because I'm white or murder me because you don't like the way I look at you or murder me because you're just murdering random people. I'm dead. Any of those ways, it doesn't really matter. Um, so the motives, look, you passed this law because you, you're dumb enough to have your empathy weaponized against you and you don't understand principles. All right, but, you know, you, you're still guilty of passing this law. So what did the law accomplish? Well, one of the most important things about raising a child, and I know a lot of you know this because you're parents, um, one of the most important parts of raising a child, one of the most, uh, the biggest responsibilities for raising a child um, 
and and not just respect with respect to the reasoning of their mind, but actually it also does affect their body, is is to uh, help teach them impulse control, right? Because being human is a large part of being human and behaving civilly, behaving like a human, is impulse control. I mean, animals don't have impulse control. They they feel a thing, they do it. They're hungry, they eat. Uh, you know, they're afraid, they fight or flight. They, uh, animals horny, it has sex with whatever, it mates with whatever's there, right? Like, animals just feel, just like the people that passed this law. Animals just feel. They don't have impulse control. It's not a thing. Humans have this prefrontal cortex. Um, I'll read a... <clears throat> I'll read a little, just so you, you guys understand the prefrontal cortex. Um, this is just an excerpt from a 2013 paper uh, in Neuropsychiatric Disease and Treatment. The paper is called Maturation of the Adolescent Brain. <clears throat> Quote, the development and maturation of the prefrontal cortex occurs primarily during adolescence and is fully accomplished at the age of 25 years. 25 years. The development of the prefrontal cortex is very important for complex behavioral performance as this region of the brain helps accomplish executive brain functions. What it does, um, part of what it does is interrupt your inhibition or interrupt your um, your impulses and allows you to stop and be like, ah, oh, I'm not going to do that. I want to, but I'm not going to do it. That's one of the most essential things for being human, right? Uh, it's the difference between being uh, an animal acting on your impulse all the time or being a human. Now, I'd like to point out it's not fully developed until the age of 25, so that should give you some thoughts maybe about how competent 18-year-olds are to do a bunch of things. But... um and I think it actually matures differently. This, this paper doesn't say this, but I think it's uh, I think in women it's a little bit earlier. I think it's like 24 for women and 26 for guys somewhere. There's a slight difference between uh, when their brain finishes maturing. But sexual impulses are one of the most persistent impulses that we have. I mean, hunger is pretty persistent, the impulse to breathe. But sexual impulses are pretty persistent, especially during adolescence right? Sexual impulses. We have our cat has kittens. Speaking of sexual impulses, our, hat, our cat had kittens, um, which was intentional. We wanted the cat to have kittens. So we let the cat, we didn't, we didn't uh, spay the cat. She had kittens. Now we're going to spay the cat. Uh, but we have, we have these six kittens in there. I don't know, a little over a month old, I guess. Now we have to get the kittens fixed. We obviously have to give them away and, and whatever, but uh, if we were going to keep, we're not going to keep the six kittens, but if we kept the six kittens, we'd have to get them fixed because the moment that they become sexually mature, even though they're brothers and sisters, they will immediately go at it. That's what they'll do. That's what animals do. They'll go at it with the mom. They'll go at it with each other. That's what animals do. That's how animals behave. That's not how humans ought to behave. One of the things um, 
that you teach your child is impulse control with respect to sexual urges, with respect to food urges, with respect to angry outbursts, um, with respect to lots of things. So what happens if you have a world where, a normal world, where parents are informed and kids know that the parents will be informed about any conversations they have with the doctor with respect to pregnancy, contraception, and abortion? What do you think happens in that world? What would happen in Donna Reed if... Uh, <laughs> If one of Mary's friends and Donna Reed has a conversation with Dr. Stone about wanting to be on contraception or needing an abortion, do you think he would call the mom? Yeah, you better believe it. Call the mom. They probably know the mom. They probably have, you know, go to bridge games with the mom. They would call the mom. So what happens? If parents get informed of this, I think most parents, maybe there are some parents who are just, you know, they want they want promiscuity or whatever. Most parents would view this as a failure of impulse control. And they would want to take some kind of corrective action, whatever that is. Different parents might have different corrective action, but this would be viewed as a problem to fix. The parent would be like, uh-oh, you want what? You want birth control? What do you want contraception for? Let's, we have to have a conversation. What do you need? Why are you pregnant? What do you need an abortion for? Like, those are like, oh, we have a problem. We need to address your irresponsibility based on your lack of impulse control. That's what we need to have a conversation about. Especially when the kid is, I mean, like I said, for these rules, it's not even like 16 and under. It's not even 12 or 16 and over or 12 and over. It's any age. I mean, 12 is horrible. I can't even imagine. But like, it's not even like some kind of thing that people would say is reasonable. Like, oh, they're in high school. Like this, it's any age. Can't know. So most parents would, would take some kind of corrective action here. Right. And the knowledge alone that your parent will know. Might serve as some sort of deterrent. <laughs> like, it's like, okay, uh, you know, this is an issue. And also, what do we know about impulse control? It's kind of like a muscle. Anyone who's tried to struggle with, let's say, um, let's say you're trying to eat better. Uh, I, I'll, you know, this is easy. I can speak to this, right? Let's say you're trying to eat better. You're trying to avoid sugar. Good thing to do. Well, the more you avoid sugar the more you're able to avoid sugar. <laughs> it's like a muscle. You grow that muscle, right? And you fall off the wagon. Okay, you can try and get back on the wagon. But the more you let that muscle atrophy, the harder it is. Just like if you skip the gym for four years and you go to the gym, that first couple weeks is horrible. But after you go to the gym for a few weeks, it starts to get easier. And it's, it's much easier to continue going to the gym than it is to start going to the gym. And the same is true with a lot of impulse control. So um, what does this accomplish? What does the state inserting itself and actually excluding parents from the realm of sexuality, of, of, of sexual uh, instruction and any sort of sexual 
uh, like control over their kids, any sort of direction or impulse control uh, direction, well, it disrupts the development of the child's impulse control. It, it, it disrupts their the parents' involvement in this, which by eliminating it as much as possible, as much as the state can. Um, so it makes it's going to make it harder for them in the future. They are they are disrupting the development of impulse control at a time when it is developing, uh, like specifically starting to develop because it's still developing in those adolescents, and it's and it's a very important time. It's a key time. It's similar to like fat shaming, right? If you if like, if you like, okay, well, if being fat is okay and parents aren't allowed to ever know, like if you ma imagine not being allowed to know that your kid's fat, like, I, I don't know how that would work, but you know, you're not allowed to know that your kid's fat. You're not allowed to know that they don't exercise. You know, like they're, you know, they're, you're blind to what's going on with your kid. Maybe your kid, you're on Mars and your kid is on in, in the US and the government of California is like, you're not allowed to know the, fat status of your child it's like well i need to be there to help them not become fat like i need to help instill good eating habits nope can't do that so it's a similar kind of thing and i think what you end up with is a population ultimately that's less human in terms of their behavior right they they are more prone to just impulsive hedonistic behavior but they're still able to vote and, and what I mean by less human, because they're more more prone to this stuff, they're probably more easily swayed uh, through emotion and rhetoric. So it's easier to arouse them and control the masses. It's easier to get them to do what you want because they've not practiced that muscle of like, I feel a thing, and but I'm not going to act on it. Right? <clears throat> You're cutting that out. In one, in a, in a, and I don't think it only pertains to sexual impulse control. I think they're related. It, it's related to other impulse control, right? So, um, yeah, you're getting, you're getting humans that are more easily manipulable, Manip manip manipulatable. Um, okay. So that's one thing you get. What about the medical conditions that you're not allowed to know about as a parent that are unrelated to sex? What does owning that relationship with your child accomplish, right? They're trying to own that relationship and exclude you. What does that accomplish? Well, I think it's psychologically demoralizing for the parent, right? Um, you know, again, I know if you're parents, you know this. Um, your children are your most precious thing in the world to you. Your, your children are like, when they walk out of the house in the morning, your heart goes with them. When they hurt, you hurt. Your, your children are the most precious thing you have. It's demoralizing to be said to be told by some bureaucrats in the state, oh, you're not even in charge of their health. That's, you don't get to be in charge. You, it's not your business. It's the same thing you see with, uh, you've seen going around a lot lately, the attitude that a lot of educators have with respect to the mind of children it's the same thing you've seen a lot of educators say you know in fact just today oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna show you this tweet this tweet oh my god this is keith olbermann you know that guy everyone he's horrible uh <clears throat> let me show you this keith olbermann tweet because 
Um, my God, it's real. It's the same kind of thing. Um, here it is. So this person named Bethany Mandel. Let's just go to her profile for a sec. Bethany, uh, in her profile. I don't know. I, I recognize her, but I can't place what, why I, I know her name. But anyway, she's wife, wife to Seth Mandel, homeschool mom too, and she puts uh, five emoji kids there, including a baby. Um, editor of Heroes of Liberty, contributing writer at, uh, what does that say? Desiree, column at Fox News. I guess she's got a column at Fox News. That's probably how I know her name. Anyway, that's who she is. Okay. So he's saying something. Uh, uh, she's responding to Steve Schmidt and and <clears throat> basically mocking him. And she says, imagine tweeting the th this thread thinking you come off like the good guy. You see, and she quotes, you see, I was able to intimidate a battle-hardened former POW in a green room. And then it was I who suffered the most during his funeral. What a narcissistic lunatic. So that's what she's saying. Okay. Keith Oberman chimes in. No one asked him, by the way, for anything. Like, no one asks him for anything. He's a horrible person. He's literally, I, I hesitate usually to say that people are just horrible, they're just wrong. This guy is a despicable excuse for a human being. He is just, yeah. I follow him on Twitter because he's so despicable. It's unimaginable. All right. He writes, imagine, he's now he's mocking her. Imagine putting homeschool mom in your bio and not understanding you've just ruined the lives of five innocent children. That is how the educators think about you parents homeschool moms that's how i mean he's not an educator but he is a member of uh the leftist elite that's how they think of you you've ruined the lives of your innocent children because you didn't send them to the state indoctrination factory so it's the same thing as what Cal so it's the same attitude is what I'm saying that California is is doing. They're saying, well, you're not in charge of the health. You're not in charge of their mind and you're not in charge of their body. Stupid slack jawed idiot parents. We are in charge. It reminds me of Brave New World, by the way. Now, demoralization, this is the eroding of your morale, right? And what happens? Why? So it's a, it's a demoralization is psychological warfare. It's a form of psychological warfare. Um, uh, Yuri Bezmenov talked about it in the 80s, um, but it's also just used in actual war. It's a, it's a it's a psychological warfare technique. And and what it leads to when you erode the morale of someone, uh, they give up. They're, they're more likely to give up. They're more likely to to uh, submit, be subservient. That's how you, that's, it's a tactic for winning. So this is a demoralization on, uh, to parents, right? Um, it's hard. I mean, you see, like, if you've lost your child, not, again, they're not actually stealing your children. I'm suggesting that. But if you've actually lost your child, it's, I mean, a lot of people just, marriages get lost. If they lose children, marriages get uh, disrupted. It massively changes people's lives. Um, it's like people never recover often. It, it's, it's a, it's a horrible, devastating thing. It's really impactful. And this is a mild version of that. It's like, well, we didn't lose your children. You, you, your child's still alive, but we're responsible for their mind and their body. Right? It's up to us. So it's horribly demoralizing. Um, and for the child, I think this is an interruption of their transition to independence. So um, 
this law, so let's imagine the, the effects of this law. This law means that healthcare providers have to start building systems, have, I guess, they have to start building systems and infrastructure for speaking directly to children. They have to, they have to be talking directly to children because the law requires this, right? So they can't just be like, you know, they can't be like Dr. Stone. Let me talk to your mom. You know, you can be there maybe if you're old enough, but I'm going to explain, you know, I got a parent here I'm talking to. Nope. You got to learn to talk directly to the kids about complex medical things. Um, and uh, and there's no parent there to be that intermediary. So what would happen without this? What would happen in a normal situation? Well, a normal situation as a kid develops, the kid starts to be old enough. You know, as they get older, they start to be able to understand the interaction between their parent who's there representing them as their advocate and the doctor, right? So, um, or their healthcare provider, whomever their, their advocate is there. Their advocate is their parent is there. They're, they can watch their parent push back on their behalf, ask for second opinions. They can, they can watch the parent assert values, uh, that maybe contradict the values of the healthcare provider and say, no, this is, we, this is what we want. We do things differently or whatever. Um, and this is how a child can learn to have agency as an autonomous individual responsible for their own health. They see that the parent doesn't just do whatever the doctor says, because the parent views themselves as, as equals. The parent is another adult, right? There's no power dynamic there, all right? When I go to see a doctor, there's not a power dynamic. If I want to ask the doctor a question, I ask the doctor a question. If I want to challenge a doctor, I challenge a doctor. I do it with uh, our other daughter's doctor all the time, right? She's like, you should do this to your baby. I'm like, nope, I'm not doing that. You're wrong, right? Show me evidence. They never can, right? And they're just like, well, it's standard practice, right? So you argue. And, you know, my youngest daughter's too young to obviously know any of that but my and pay attention to that or learn from it. But my older daughter absolutely can see that and absolutely can learn from that and can learn to assert herself and be her own autonomous individual, not having to always just listen to the doctor, be able to push back, ask for clarification, get second opinions, advocate for herself. How do you think she learns that? She learns it from watching me do it for her or her mom do it for her on her behalf during her formative years, which are now when she's old enough to understand the vocabulary, understand what's going on, but doesn't have a strong enough sense of self yet, hasn't really figured out uh, how to advocate for herself effectively yet. This is how she learns that. They're stealing that from children. Now, what they're wanting to do is have kids transition from one guardian, the parent, to another guardian. Now, the healthcare system is the guardian of them. There's no parent to demonstrate how to interact with healthcare providers as equals, as two adults talking. That healthcare provider is in a position of power. They're an authority figure. They assume the role of guardian. The parent can't know anything about it. This is just between the two of them. And this cements this, this is going to cement a more permanent submission to the healthcare provider as an authority figure. Because there's no way to learn how to be your own advocate against them. Not that you always have to be against your doctor. Obviously not. They're there to, to help you. They're, they should be. But you need to be your own advocate. You're not going to learn that if from the age of 12, you've lost your advocate. 
and your interactions with the healthcare system are, I mean, you know, my daughter's not a snowflake, but if you've seen a lot of 12 year old kids, they don't have a lot of confidence often. Some of them do in certain circumstances. Right. But like, it's a whole new world, like going to the lab and getting test results and listening to the doctor and do this and do that. And I have to like, they're, they mostly just want to obey what they're being told by the authority in the white coat. They need to see that you can push back against that authority and they never will. That's California's goal. And they never will. So these agents of the state, as I mentioned, they're so regulated. They're just agents of the state. These agents of the state uh, are going to end up in permanent positions of authority as these people grow up. You thought COVID was bad. You thought Fauci worship was bad. Wait till this generation of kids from places like California grows up. It won't even occur to them that they're being lied to or that there's any ulterior motive. It's just, just, it won't even occur to them because they'll never have advocated on their own behalf for healthcare. They don't have health needs. And by the way, not to freak you out even more, but I don't know if you've noticed uh, in the past couple of years, there's been an expansion of the meaning of the word health and the word safety to encompass, encompass everything. I think it was Biden that uh, a couple of years ago, I remember, he, I think it was Biden, said something about like, economic stuff being quote related to health yeah everything's related to health literally everything is related to health especially if you throw mental health in there everything's related to health so these people through the the authority of health care are going to be able to have their mitts in everything right we we went to the when we went to the doctor today there's that question that i always just ignore at the end it's like are there guns in the home that's related to health Never answer that, by the way, or just lie and say no. Um, none of their fucking business whether there's guns in the home. But, I mean, everything is related to health. As far as they're concerned, everything will be related to health. Now, why? Why do they do this? Why do they want to control over your health? You should ask that question. I think I have an answer for it. My answer is, you are tax cattle. That's what you are to them. You are not a human being. You are not an individual. You are not their equal. You are tax cattle. That's what you are. The, the elites, the, the cathedral, the people in charge generally... And, and I mean this in a a, uh, a political sense predominantly, but also the elites that support that political establishment. They're kind of modern-day sorcerers. You know, what, what makes a sorcerer power? He gives him power. He says some words. He conjures. He has a spell. He casts a spell. He says some words. And, and things happen. The earth moves. People do things, whatever. Like, massive things happen when a sorcerer just utters an incantation. That's what politicians do. That's what the elite does. They utter incantations. Uh, Socrates would have called them sophists. This is sophistry, right? This is the if you if you read uh, Gorgias or, or Protagoras or whatever. This is this is what he's talking about. 
These are people who Protagoras are like talking about how to quote, get things done in government, right? And it's how to persuade people. It's the art of persuasion. Not, not, uh, not the art of identifying truth and making factual arguments, but persuading, persuading. And that's what they're experts at. They're experts at persuading. And a lot of times that's playing games with your heartstrings, weaponizing empathy, misrepresenting things, being intentionally vague or cherry picking or what all these different, these are all sophistry. And sophists are kind of a sorcerer and that, and they're who's in charge now. And they use these words to control armies of people, entire zombies, right? They get out there and they, they utter some words and suddenly Karen is yelling at you in the Safeway because you don't have a mask. Suddenly, your private school is requiring vaccinations because they're so afraid. This is the magic of sorcery. It's not actually magic. It's just sophistry. It's just words that people that are unable to think for themselves respond to. People that are and and we're all respond, you know, we all respond to some level or another with it. But the goal is to be able to use your reason to catch that rhetoric and, and realize, like, whoa, 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 it makes me feel a certain way. I, that NPR story that tugged my heartstrings does make me feel f- bad for that person, but that doesn't mean we need universal basic income, does it? No, it doesn't. Right? Like, that's what your job is as a thinking individual is to nip that in the bud to not be led by your thoughts. But most people are very bad at that. And sorcerers, these these uh, these sorcerers use this language as a form of incantation to get you to do stuff, right? And they justify their 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 incantations. Typically, come the kind of seeds, the magic words often come from the high priests in universities who are pushing really really bad, stupid philosophy stuff that's just absolutely horrible. That if it was reduced, when you do see it reduced to its bare bones thing just sounds ridiculous and stupid and dumb, but is the justification, the intellectual justification for stuff. And, and they weave this into their language and that's what they do. And so these sorcerers are actually your farmer. These are the people running the farm and their job is to give you the illusion of freedom so that you'll be more productive. And I I want to use China as an example because China figured this out. China's not communist. I don't care what you say. They're not they yes, they have a communist party. The communist party is in charge. They call themselves communist. Bully for them. We call ourselves capitalist and we're not. They call themselves communist and they're not. They watched communism. They watched Stalin and then Khrushchev try and play out communism in the Soviet Union. They watched it fail miserably because it's stupid, evil, and sucks. They watched it fail. They don't want to fail. The Communist Party in China doesn't want to fail. They don't want to be kicked out of power. You got to be kidding me. So what they do? Well, Deng Xiaoping, after, uh, after Mao died, Deng Xiaoping took over. And Deng Xiaoping... Uh, said, well, the socialism stuff kind of sucks. I mean, he didn't say it that directly, but he was like, yeah, the socialism stuff kind of sucks. What we need is socialism. And he added, he added words. This is how you do it. 
what we need is socialism with Chinese characteristics. Oh, oh, is that what you need? With Chinese characteristics? Yeah. What did he mean by that? What he meant was, we need to stay in charge. We need to stay in power. And we can't have our economy collapse. We can't, we can't have ourselves fall apart like the Soviet Union. If you I mean, you know, and now you watch the Cultural Revolution. I mean, things were a mess, an absolute mess. And the economy was suffering. All their five-year plans were failing, right? So he needed to do something. And what they did, and what China has gotten good at, is they recognize, okay, well, look, we want to be in control because we're the elite assholes who run China. Okay. Let's start with that premise. We don't want these stupid proletariat revolting against us. And we we can't lose all, we can't go poor. We need we need money. Like we we need to have money to have our power. We can't just like bankrupt the country. How can we get these assholes to work for us? That's what they thought. How do we get these stupid peasants to work for us? Because they didn't like it didn't work. You know, what was the, the joke in the Soviet Union? Like they pretend we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Communism doesn't work. Communism is dumb. They don't work. People don't work. It doesn't work. And they fail economically. So how do we fix? How do we not do that? That's what they wanted to do in China. How do we not do that? How do we maintain power? But not uh, not lose. You know, we want we want to maintain power, but we don't want to go bankrupt. Well, they started economic development zones, and they said, "Well, what if we give them this economic freedom's got something to it? You know, when we let people keep some of their money a little bit, it doesn't have to be all, but when like keep keep some of their money, and we let them start businesses and do some stuff, and." They tend to work in their own best interest. They tend to like work at this, and they that incentivizes these idiots. They get they have an opportunity to raise their standard of living. As long as we don't lose control, what's wrong with a little bit of capitalism? Let's just sprinkle some in there. And so they tried that out, and it worked fantastically. And you end up with cities like Shenzhen, who which were fantastically successful, fantastically successful. Now they don't have the freedom of speech, but they have. The freedom of lots of speech, just not the stuff that threatens the Communist Party. They don't have complete economic freedom, but they have lots of freedom to do a lot of the stuff. When they get big enough, CCP shows up and makes sure that you're, you know, towing the line. But when you're small, they kind of leave you alone, let you do your thing. They figured out how to run a tax farm efficiently. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. They're giving enough freedom that people feel okay about it and they're being productive for the elites and the elites are raking it in maintaining power now china's got some problems who knows how long this will last because they're you know doing other stupid things but that's what they're doing they're running a tax farm and here in the u.s the freedoms that you enjoy are not recognized on principle they're not recognized in principle at all just look at look at the federal government look at all the laws that are, are passed, the, the the judicial decisions that are issued. They're never really about principle, very rarely. And when they are, it's like a, finding a diamond in the rough. Most of the stuff is like, yeah, well, we have to balance that with this other thing that we want. Like, okay. They, they're not principled. They're giving you enough freedoms so that you feel like you're free enough 
that you'll go out and work and be productive and pay your effing taxes. That's what they want. Your freedoms don't matter to these people on principle. They matter only in that they're an incentive for you. What they figured out was that, and this is true, like animals that are, are feel like they're in cages are less productive than animals that feel free, but they're actually still in a caged pasture. That's all this is. Actual freedom, as far as these people are concerned, which is, I'm not throwing the founding fathers in this category. They understood the principles and actual freedom. But as for the people now, as far as, for by and large, almost all of them, as far as actual freedom is concerned, it's never an option. Go try and start a business without a license. Try and pay an employee something. Like, find someone who wants to work for an amount that you want to pay and try and do that if that amount's not approved, if it's below minimum wage or whatever. Can't do it. Try and start your business without a license. Can't do it. Try and have a business that once it gets big enough and you don't provide health care, you make them, hey, go find your health care somewhere else. Can't do it. If you're in California, just try hiring a contractor. That's very easy. Or working as a contractor. Can't do it. Try carrying a firearm to protect yourself in most of the country. Can't do it. Or maybe printing one. Try homeschooling. They're cracking down on homeschooling. Try no schooling. Can you do that? Nope. Can't do it. You're not free to do those things. Try keeping your house without paying your property taxes or just saying, well, hey, I'll pay for police and fire and some other things, but I don't want to pay all those. I'm not paying that. Can't do it. Most importantly, try keeping what you earn. Try opting out of the farm. Hey, guys, um, I'm going to pay for these are the these are the things I'll pay. I, I Thanks, IRS, for the tax bill. I get it. But, you know, uh, I don't approve of all these foreign wars. So what I'm going to do, I will pay for these defense things because I think these are important. And um, I do drive on the freeways, even though I don't think you should be in charge of them. So I'll pay for that. Uh I don't want any federal uh, loan stuff here. I don't want that. I don't want any of this. I don't want any of these corporate. Well, I, I'm not paying for anything else. Try owning your own output. You don't own your own output any more than the chicken on a farm owns his eggs, her eggs. You don't own it. You can't decide what to give them. They decide. They decide. And it has gone from zero to the federal government to 1%, 2%, 3%, 4%. It's you know, practically 50% in many cases. You're slowly being turned into a farm animal. That's what's happening. And that's why they care about the health care of your kids because your kids are farm animals. The doctor, sorry, the farmer doesn't leave. The farmer doesn't say to the cow, eh, I'll, you take care of the calf and raise the calf. That would be stupid. Cows can't raise calves. We, not not according to the farmer, not the way the farmer wants. I'll take care of the calf. I'll make sure the calf is as healthy as I want the calf to be. I'll make sure the calf likes the little pasture I'm providing. I'll make sure the calf is used to the milking machine or whatever. Like, that's, that's their job. It's not your job. Your child is part of your output. Your child is part of your productive output for the state. That is the attitude. And that's what makes me angry, by the way. That's why I was angry all day today. It's not just California, but California. Man, that rant was much longer than I wanted it to be. <sighs> Judge Lott sends a super chat. Let's see if we can find this one and put it up on screen. There it is. 
He says, sorry for being off topic, topic, but why do you think the cathedral is so obsessed with circumcising baby boys? Obviously acknowledging that it's a money-making scheme for the healthcare industry. That's a good question. Um, oh man, that's a good question, Judge Lott. Uh, obviously, I think, I mean, there's some money-making thing there. There's some inertia. Uh, in the healthcare industry, there's some face saving because they've been saying that it's you know healthy and necessary, which is, is obviously not true. Um, I mean, you all know it started out as a as an attempt to, um, a Kellogg actually, the cereal guy pushed this. Uh, it started out as an attempt to um, eradicate. <laughs> masturbation they figured they would it would make sex so un, uh not pleasurable that boys would stop masturbating i don't know who thinks that boys will ever stop masturbating but uh that was i think the idea um and just so you know just the, the religious people know uh, modern day circumcision is nothing like the ancient biblical circumcision which was like a little notch it was not removal of the entire foreskin um so i don't know i don't know why I don't know, Judge Lot. I don't know if it's just inertia, if it's uh, they don't want to lose face by admitting that they were wrong, if it's just a money-making thing, um, or if it's a way to upset people that they want to upset uh, or to marginalize people they want to marginalize. Um, it's a good question. If you guys have any other answers, Judge Lot, do you have any answers? Do you have any guesses why they're obsessed with it? Um, I don't know. Don writes in chat, Kellogg was one of the great crackpots of history. Yes. Yes. All right. Completely, completely unrelated, I'm sure. Here's an NPR article about grooming. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's not related to anything why the state wants to be inserted in sex life of children. Um, or even, you know, make sure children have sex lives. Thanks, California. Uh, NPR... I think this was this morning that I heard this. I printed it out, though, because, you know, I'm me. There, uh, the, the name of this article is Accusations of Grooming Are the Latest Political Attack with Homophobic Origins. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but... They're, what they're doing now is they're saying, look, hey, these conservatives are using this phrase, grooming. It's unconscionable. How dare they? How dare they call us groomers? Uh, someone says, I heard that UTI infection rates went way down, I believe. I don't think so, Greg. I don't think that's true. Um, that's the uh, argument for it, though. Um, <laughs> Greg says, why are we still funding NPR? The thing is, NPR is funded by uh, the feds, which I would, obviously, if you're going to send that letter I recommended to the IRS earlier, you might want to say I'm not funding NPR. It's one of those line items cross out. Um, but also a lot of, uh, I mean, listen to their funders. A lot of times you'll hear things like funding for this program is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. I mean, it's, it's rich elites like that who are helping. Um, all right. I'll start by just reading Mallory, Mc <laughs> Mallory and McMorrow was stunned when she saw it with horror. The Michigan State Senator, a Democrat, read an email accusing her of grooming children. The email went was sent by a fellow senator, Republican Lana Theus. 
who was soliciting funds from her supporters for her re-election campaign. In that email, Theus wrote that children are, quote, under assault in our schools by what she called progressive mobs trying to steal our children's innocence. And then it got personal. Quote, she accused me by name of grooming and wanting to sexualize kindergartners, McMorrow tells NPR. I mean, my heart absolutely sank. McMorrow says she kept thinking about her one-year-old daughter, Noah. And then NPR is going to help you out. The heading of the next section, I don't know if you can read it, is what is grooming? Oh, good. Don't make me look in a dictionary. Why don't you define it for me, NPR? Because I'm sure you have a nice narrow definition that you work works well for your agenda. <clears throat> you know, grooming is just an act of befriending a child for the purpose of molesting them, she says. Just the most horrific, disgusting, vile accusation that can be thrown at you. Now, by the way, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, <clears throat> grooming is to befriend or influence a child in preparation for future sexual abuse. That's different than befriending them for molesting them. It's befriending or influencing in preparation for future abuse, maybe not by you, maybe by someone else. That's a much broader definition of grooming. I wonder if the Oxford English Dictionary has it wrong and Mallory McMorrow has it correct because she's the Democratic senator that the NPR like, that NPR likes. So she must be right about the definition because it's a nice, it's a narrow definition and she's probably not personally befriending children to molest them. So she's exempt. All right. Lately, that accusa accusation has been thrown at those who support LGBTQ rights. We'll get to why that is uh, an utter lie. That's not who it's thrown at. It's not people who support LGBTQ rights. It's a lie. Teachers, companies, politicians, in addition to McMorrow. Grooming has become an incendiary buzzword of right-wing rhetoric weaponized in the fight over anti-LGBTQ legislation. It's not LGBTQ, it's not anti-LGBTQ legislation. Actual grooming occurs. Actual, now NPR is going to educate us. Here's your tax dollars with help from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Annenberg Foundation. Uh, here's how that money is spent. Actual grooming occurs when adults take advantage of a child's vulnerability to manipulate and coerce the child into sexual abuse. No, grooming is influencing them in preparation. <clears throat> now that meaning has been warped and corrupted to broadly smear the motives of LGBTQ people. Yeah, yeah, that's what they're trying to do. Chris Rufo is trying to smear, smear the motives of all gays. Nice, NPR. And those who oppose anti-LGBTQ legislation. And then there's some recent examples. Tucker Carlson says they're grooming kids, blah, 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 blah. They go on to uh... – <laughs> here's the same politician. Quote, I talked to kids in my district at a high school last Monday, she says. And the first question was from a girl, probably 15 or 16, who said, you know, I identify as queer. I'm LGBTQ. Why do they hate us? And it's just heartbreaking. <laughs> they don't hate you, honey. None of this is about... I am. Okay. 
None of this is about hurting 16-year-old lesbians. All right, then this other, you know, activist, LGBTQ rights activist, Evan Wolfson says, it's a despicable attack, but it's not a new tactic. This is a classic trope of trope of dehumanization and fear that has been used against gay people decade after decade after decade. Think about the calumny, sorry, the calumny, <laughs> I can't pronounce words. Think about the calumny against gay people throughout most of our lifetimes that gay people somehow are molesting kids or are after kids or predatory. They go on, they they show a Chris Rufo tweet, they yell at him, they yell about him. I'm going to read this last piece, and then we'll just talk about it quickly. The last piece here says, I guess it's not the very end, a couple pages later, it says, uh, <clears throat> this is, um, who is this talking? Thatcher. I forget who Thatcher is. Some dude. Uh, um. LGBTQ activist. Uh, okay. Quote, grooming is an act that happens as you break down barriers of someone, he says. Okay. It's especially, <laughs> it's especially heinous when pointing at unsuspecting, trusting, vulnerable children. When pointed at unsuspecting, trusting, vulnerable children. And so the argument, the argument that telling a child that you will support them regardless of who and how they love is somehow equivalent to teaching a child that they're not allowed to say no or set boundaries, like, to me, that is just reprehensible to conflate the two. You know what's reprehensible? You're conflating that with what people are pissed about. Okay. They are mischaracterizing the opposition. Let's just point out what it is. Let's just point out what this mischaracterization is. People that are, are using this word, Rufo, James, Lindsay, um, what are they actually opposed to? Are they telling, are they opposed to telling a child that you'll support them regardless of who and how they love? Is that what they're opposed to? Are they opposed to 16-year-old lesbian women? Girls? Is that what they're opposed to? Are they running around saying? Gays are molesting kids? Is that what they're doing? No. No. Here's what they're opposed to, just to make it clear for you moronic NPR listeners. Like myself, I'm a moron NPR listener, I guess. Okay. One, they're opposed to the discussion of sexually inappropriate content for children, including, as we've seen, reported by Chris Rufo and others, Countless times, programs aimed at K through five or eight or whatever, but starting at kindergarten. They're not opposed to not mentioning that you're gay or acknowledging that you have a gay uncle. No one's saying a teacher can't, if he's a guy, can't say my husband, or if the teacher's a girl, can't say my wife. No one's saying that you can't do that. They're saying Stop discussing the sexuality as it pertains to the child. Stop. And by the way, you're worried about breaking down boundaries, this dude? Oh, breaking down boundaries. Yeah. Stop breaking down their boundaries. Stop talking to them when they're in kindergarten or too young for about sexual behavior. It's inappropriate. And it's a grooming technique. That's what they're upset about. That's what they're upset about. It is 
influencing them in preparation for sexual abuse. That's what it is. That's what they're upset about. They're upset about the introduction of the genderbred man and crap like that to kindergartners. Asking someone to, especially a kid, saying you identify as this category of thing, by the way, is, is anti-individualist. It's I'm like, look, you're not a non-binary or a blah, 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 blah. You're Susie or Johnny or Jimmy or whatever. Like, you are who you are. You're an individual. We don't need to stick you into a gender category when you're in kindergarten. You, you're an individual. We'll use your, your pronouns that are associated with your sex because you do have chromosomes. We'll use those. If later in life you decide that you're not all that masculine or all that feminine, you're fine. But when you're in kindergarten, completely inappropriate. It's anti-intellectual. It's anti-individual. You're deconstructing gender before it's even been constructed. Right? It undermines normal. And when I say normal, I mean typical development by negating valid concepts. Man and woman... I'm sorry to say, guys, are valid concepts. This is anti-conceptual. It's intentionally confusing and it's damaging. In fact, uh, actually, I'm going to read. I'm going to read something. I know this might be a long show. I don't care. <clears throat> I'm going to read something. This is an excellent old article. If you want to read this, this is called the Comperchicos. It's by Ayn Rand. I don't remember what year it's from. I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously. But I'm going to read like a page because I want because I want you to see. I love this analogy and I just. The Comprachicos or Compra Pequeños were a strange and hideous nomadic association famous in the 17th century, forgotten in the 18th, unknown today. Comprachicos, as well as Comprachineros, is a compound Spanish word that means child buyers. The Comprachicos traded in children. They bought them and sold them. They did not steal them. The kidnapping of children is a different industry. And what did they make of these children? Monsters. Why monsters? To laugh. The people need laughter. So do the kings. Cities require sideshow freaks or clowns. Palaces require jesters. To, su to succeed in producing a freak, one must get hold of him early. A dwarf must be started when he's small. Hence an art. There were educators. They took a man and turned him into a miscarriage. They took a face and made a muzzle. They stunted growth. They mangled features. This artificial production of teratological cases and its own rules. It was a whole science. Imagine an inverted orthopedics. Where God had put a straight glance, this art put a squint. Where God had put harmony, they put deformity. Where God had put perfection, they brought back a botched attempt. And in the eyes of connoisseurs, it is the botched that was perfect. The practice of degrading man leads one to the practice of deforming him. Deformity completes the task of political suppression. 
The Comprachicos had a talent to disfigure that made them valuable in politics. To disfigure is better than to kill. There was the Iron Mask, but that's an awkward means. One cannot populate Europe with Iron Masks. Deformed mountebanks, however, run through the streets without appearing implausible. Besides, an Iron Mask can be torn off. A mask of flesh cannot. To mask you forever by means of your own face, nothing can be more ingenious. The Comprachicos did not merely remove a child's face, they removed his memory. At least they removed as much of it as they could. The child was not aware of the mutilation he had suffered. This horrible surgery left traces on his face, not in his mind. He could remember at most that one day he had been seized by some men, then had fallen asleep, and later they had cured him. Cured him of what? He did not know. Of the burning by sulfur and the incisions by iron, he remembered nothing. During the operation, the Comprachicos made the little patient unconscious by means of a stupefying powder that passed for magic and suppressed pain. And then she goes on later. Victor Hugo wrote this in the 19th century. He, she quoted him. He exalt, the, his exalted mind could not conceive that so unspeakable a form of inhumanity would ever be possible again. The 20th century proved him wrong. The production of monsters, helpless, twisted monsters, whose normal development has been stunted, goes on all around us. But the modern heirs of the Comprachicos are smarter and subtler than their predecessors. They do not hide. They practice their trade in the open. They do not buy children. The children are delivered to them. They do not use sulfur or iron. They achieve their goal without ever laying a finger on their little victims. The ancient Comprachicos hid the operation, but displayed its results. Their heirs have reversed the process. The operation is in the open. The results are invisible. In the past, this horrible surgery left traces on a child's face not in his mind. Today, it leaves traces in his mind, not on his face. In both cases, the child is not aware of the mutilation he has suffered. But today's Comprachicos do not use narcotic powders. They take a child before he's fully aware of reality and never let him develop that awareness. Where nature has put a normal brain, they put mental retardation. To make you unconscious for life by means of your own brain, nothing can be more ingenious this is the ingenuity practiced by most of today's educators. They are the comprachicos of the mind. They do not place a child into a vase to adjust his body to its contours. They place him into a progressive nursery school to adjust him to society. She goes on. I, I can go. I can read this whole thing. I love this article. Um. That's what they're doing with the gender bread man. By the way, one other reason I'm going to point out, one other reason people are opposed to this stuff NPR, one reason we call it grooming, it's especially harmful to the LGB kids, not to the TQ plus kids. Well, it's harmful to them as well, but for different reasons. This ideology takes children who may grow up to be LGB, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and tells them that because they don't fit in, they've got to be hammered into the shape of a TQ+. That's what it does. These people that you're yelling about, Chris Rufo's one is featured in this article, these people that you're accusing 
of hating the 16-year-old queer girl. I don't know what she meant by queer. Let's just say she was a lesbian. They're trying to protect them. They're trying to protect them and tell them that, look, just because you're different, just because you're attracted to the same gender, doesn't mean you have to be, You doesn't mean you're this different gender or you're any other thing. There's anything wrong. Like, that's okay. You can grow up to be lesbian, girl. That's okay. They're protecting her. They're protecting the first half of that <laughs> alphabet soup. They're protecting the LGB kids who have been totally lost. Who've been totally lost. Because the elites are trying to create TQ plus kids. That's what's happening. All right. Zero fucks in chat writes, T is anti-LGB. Right. Right. But NPR is not saying that. Right. NPR is not saying, well, one big concern people who are calling these people groomers have is, A, sexualizing children when they don't need to be, and B, you know, this is harmful to kids who are just different. It's harmful to the next generation's David Bowie. Because he's going to go take hormones and 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 just uh, and become sterile and perhaps change his mind later and like have surgery. Like he's going to you're going to encourage him to do all this stuff when really he's just a weirdo and that's fine. Writes good music. <laughs> Turn it on the screw rates. When I was eight, I wanted to be a dinosaur. God only knows what would have happened to me today. Right. You would be, oh, you are, you're a Tyrannosaurus. Your pronouns are T and Rex. I don't know. Yeah, totally. All right. Um, I know I have more stuff. It, this is long. I'm sorry. This long. I'm, I'm going to keep going. Uh, let's talk about popularity contest for just a moment. Because um, there's interesting research that I just think is, is useful for you guys to know. Dino gender, that's what it's called. That's right. Um, look, we live in, you know, it's a cliche to say this, but we live in kind of a divisive time, let's say. Although I don't understand why, because Biden said he was all about unity. So I thought that would be fixed by now, but apparently not. Um, and recently that divide has been the authoritarian left versus individualists, basically. Um and look, the left has always been authoritarian because they've always been collectivists. They've always been the tax farmers. They've always been into tax farms. Um, and the left has always liked personal liberties that don't affect the tax farm, right? So they don't like the liberty of like, you don't own your wallet. No, no. But, you know, free speech is porn. That's fine. Questioning Fauci? Nah, it's not okay, right? Like, that's the kind of thing the left has always been about, always, right? And, and, you know, as, if you want, you want to run naked down the streets, you know, smearing jello all of yourself, that's fine. Uh, you want to question the, the validity of the Pfizer vaccine? <laughs> no, no, that's not okay. Um, so questioning authority for the left is always, you know, they like questioning authority when they, that authority is perceived as conservative. That's a virtue. But when that authority is perceived as woke, it's a crime, right? That's, that's the left. They've always been disingenuous, always. I, I contend that they were never principled. Um, most of them. A few people who called themselves left were principled. 
Um, as the left has become more blatant about this, because they've had more power, right? Their power has become institutionalized. They recognize they have power. They can get away with more. The mask has slipped. They've just been more overt than they were in the past. Um, people on the right have started to have interests that are aligned with individualists. I'm distinguishing individualists from right or left. So a lot of people on the right started to have interests that were aligned because they wanted to speak out against the leftist establishment. And the leftists were like, no, right? And so the people on the right were like, hey, free speech. And individualists were like, yeah, free speech. Let's fight against these jerks, right? Free speech. Um, but uh, I think the backlash, the right the the right wing backlash is starting to get some traction. And I'm personally, I'm starting to see the authoritarian on the right rise a little bit in response. And you're seeing a lot of traditionalism um, and willingness to use the government to enforce traditionalism, traditionalism, rather than this recognition that, hey, we threw out a bunch of stuff before that we shouldn't have, right? We, there was the Chesterton's fence fallacy, right? Chesterton, GK Chesterton was like, you know, you come across a fence in the road, you can't take it down until you understand why it was there in the first place. Like that's kind of right. And, you know, you can say, look, Western culture took down the fence without understanding why it was there in many ways in, in, in life. And the conservatives are correct to point that out, but they're now doing the same thing, trying to throw away a bunch of stuff that, uh, they don't understand why it's there. there uh, there's there's a movement actually to throw away many of the good things about the Enlightenment, not just bad. So I'm starting to see that a little bit. I'm not super concerned about it being like tomorrow anything's going to happen, but I'm starting to see that. But in any case, regardless, independent thinkers um, have always kind of found themselves surrounded by automatons, whether it's on the right or on the left. Lately, it's the leftists leftist zombies but it wasn't always right i mean um socrates against athens right galileo against the catholic church um in the 80s it was d snyder against tipper gore right anyone against the moral majority in the 80s right they were they were the problem um when you're in an independent thinker when you're an individualist in particular um because they tend to disagree with, there's always someone, no matter who you're talking to as an individualist, they disagree with you about something, right? It's it's tempting to try and fly below the radar. Because otherwise you're like rejected by everyone. It's tempting, I get it. You know, when I moved to San Francisco, I noticed something. I noticed that like, well, as an atheist, um, I suddenly was in this environment where I didn't have to not talk about religion anymore because... A lot of people were atheists, but I had to stop talking about guns because everyone hated <laughs> guns, right? Like it was like, uh, uh, okay, like it, the, the environment changed a little bit, right? Um, you know, if you, if you have, well, I mean, there, there was an office that I was in, in, in San Francisco where, uh, you know, it was mostly leftists, right? So I couldn't talk in that office, not that I couldn't, and I, I did actually, I did speak up, but, um, there's a temptation to like not mention I'm pro second amendment because <laughs> like hmm, there's some pushback. But then when I would go, I did a lot of firearms training in Arizona. I would go to Arizona and like, there was a temptation to like not mention that I didn't believe in God. Cause that was a problem for a lot of the people in those classes. Right. So, you know, different environment, different pressures. Um, and a lot of times we fear the backlash of being the odd one out. And, 
that's not irrational. There are physical, sometimes even physical, there's social consequences, definitely. And that makes sense. Humans are social animals. And, uh, you know, in society, complete ostracism is death. Like if, if everyone in the world, literally everyone in the world stopped interacting with you, you would die. Right. Probably. I mean, you could try and go steal some food or whatever, but like, I guess then they would interact with you. <laughs> like, but like you would, you would die. You can't be ostracized completely from everyone. You can be ostracized from little groups, but ostracism, uh, ostracism is uh, understandably anxiety producing in humans. Right. So that's why you have this fear uh, of, of not saying like of saying something that we need when you're in an environment of everyone disagreeing with you and you know, they're going to disagree. It means that being unpopular is dangerous, right? Which is unrelated to whether you're right or wrong. In fact, quite often you're right because popular is often wrong. Not always. Uh, <clears throat> so you're tempted, you're tempted to hide your unpopular opinions. Now, I don't recommend this because, first of all, well, primarily I have never recommended it because it hurts your self-esteem. Um, it's a form of self-erasure. It's a form of self-censorship and self-abnegation. Um, you're, you're kind of saying to yourself, who I am and what I really believe is incompatible with the social reality of them. It's like, and, and that might be true. Maybe it is incompatible, but like, it's incompatible in this fundamental way. I can't be who I am, right? Um, it's very, it's very dangerous to your self-esteem to be doing that. I, like I said, it is a form of self-erasure. Um, so I would say don't do that unless the repercussions, I mean, sometimes, look, the repercussions sometimes are so severe or unbearable that they justify that kind of a self-injury. It's like, well, I, I have to, right? Like if you know you're going to be executed, like if you you end up in a, uh, <laughs> you end up in a Taliban camp, right? Uh And you can get away with just being quiet. Maybe being quiet's a good idea. You maybe saying like, "Hey, I don't, I don't believe in any of this stuff." Hmm? Right? I understand why you might want to. Like, there are cases where like eh, the repercussions are so severe. Now, maybe maybe you still want to. Maybe you want to be like, you know what? Screw you. Like whatever. But you know, your repercussions might be severe and you, to the point where you you might die. I just accept that. But I understand why people are hesitant in some situations now. Usually, though, the fear of the repercussions is much worse than the repercussions themselves. So usually we're very afraid and really it's like, meh, they don't, they don't care. Uh, or if they care, but you lost, you lost that group of people, whatever. It's usually less uh, horrible than you think it's going to be. But also, and this is what I wanted to share. There's a new study. Uh, it doesn't, it turns out it doesn't work. This is a study in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. It's called When and Why, quote, staying out of it backfires in moral and political disagreements. Um, and if, thanks, thankfully, the, the author made this cool little slide, like, summation. I mean, I read the article, but let's just, we'll put the summation up because it's easier. Um, where is it? Here it is. Well, we'll go through this. So what he did was he asked the question. He's he and his and uh, a co-author. They asked this question. Okay, first of all, 
do people naturally try and stay out of it when they feel like they're in an environment that's potentially hostile? The answer is yes, they do. That is the thing they do. And they, they do it in a bunch of different ways. Um, and then their question was, how do people react? Does it work? Does it work? Does being neutral work? Uh, and the summary of this entire thing is, nope, it doesn't work. Um, I'll read the key result here or for you. Political neutrality is often interpreted as strategically concealed opposition. So, by the way, so even if you're genuinely neutral, if you're in an environment where expressing the opinion, where like the opinion of the room is known, and you don't express an opinion, they assume that you oppose, and they're concealing your opposition. So political neutrality is often interpreted as strategically concealed opposition, and it can harm and harm trust and erode cooperation, even relative to opposing a participant's viewpoint outright. So we'll get into that in a minute, but let's just a couple examples. They asked, they, they, there, there's like six or seven different versions of studies here they did, but, um, they, you know, this chart here is they, they had people talk about, um, politically charged issues. So they, one of them was, uh, not on this particular study. One of them was gun control, whatever. I've got a chart in front of me that he doesn't include that says abortion, uh, kneeling for the anthem, the Confederate statues, like getting rid of them, protesting against police and COVID mask mandates. Right. So these are those, that was a list here. He shows a list of just three that he chose to show for this slide thing. But, um, this zero bar is neutrality right? You seem neutral if you're at the zero bar. And so you see, when you're talking to a conservative audience, which is this this uh, gray, so conservative audience is gray and um, liberal audience is white. So when you're talking to a conservative audience about Confederate statues and you're trying to be neutral, you're trying to stay out of it, you seem liberal. Movement to the left is seeming liberal. Movement to the right is seeming conservative. When you're talking to a liberal audience and you and you are neutral, you seem conservative. And this is true all the way down the line. Um, there's some cases actually where conservatives think you're like are, are less prone to this. Like you're talking to a conservative audience about anthem kneeling and you don't express an opinion. They don't think you're as liberal as if you're talking to a liberal audience and you don't express an opinion. They think you're very conservative, right? But this basically says this doesn't work. In fact, um, what they found, what they found here was that uh, I'll, I, I won't read all this. It's it's kind of a pain to go through. But what they found was that even if you sincerely were neutral, if they knew that the the if you knew that the group you were talking to had a position and you were neutral, you were assumed to have the opposite position, and they trusted you less than if you just said you had the opposite position. So not only did you lose the allies you would have gained by just outright opposing it, because they're not your allies anymore, because they don't know what you're saying. Like you also are less trusted by the audience and less trusted by people generally because you are viewed to have concealed this rather than just said it outright. And it, and they in one of the studies, which I don't think he shows here, but they did, uh, I guess he shows part of it. They did this um, 
they did this test where if you find out that the person sincerely believes the neutrality um, later, like you get to overhear a private conversation where you find out they, their, their uh, neutrality was genuine, then your trust goes back. Then they trust you again. So it's all about they just don't – basically, you can try and conceal your beliefs if you're in a group of people. Let's say you're in a group of uh, leftists who all think uh, Twitter should censor more and they're all – you know, they're all pro censorship. And if you say, well, I don't have a position on Elon Musk or right. If that's your, if you mumble that you don't have a position or you don't know about it or whatever, they'll assume that not only do you oppose them, but they'll trust you less than if you just outright oppose them. Cause you're concealing that you oppose them. Even if you truly don't have a, so, um, I just wanted to point that out. It's an interesting study. Um, and uh, and by the way, they also studied cooperation, uh, which was also impacted by this. Like, would people actually cooperate with you? Um, so, look, this, the summary here is you don't have to argue with people. You don't have to get into big arguments. But if you're surrounded by people that you're in honest disagreement with about a particular issue, it might behoove you to at least just say that and say, you know what? I disagree. I don't want to talk about it. I don't have to get into it. I disagree. Right? Yeah, they might not like that about you, but actually they'll trust you more. It'll be better for you. So that fear, A, it's good for your self-esteem to at least assert that you disagree. And B, that, that, uh, that fear that you had, uh, you should actually be more afraid to conceal because that doesn't go well. That's all. All right. I know the show is supposed to end. We can go in two hours. I'm going to keep going because last time, last week I got to this point and I wanted to share this article with you. And I said, I don't have time. And you guys said, keep going. I want to hear this article. And I said, maybe next week. And here we are at the same time. <clears throat> I haven't shown the article yet. So I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm also going to have a cough drop because I'm not 100%. So sorry about that. You're going to have to listen to me chew on a cough drop. You get what you pay for. Okay. This is an article I brought up last time. <clears throat> it's in the Mint Press News. It's by a guy named Alan McLeod. It's a good article. The title is The NATO to TikTok Pipeline. Why is TikTok employing so many national security agents? And there's a little thing here that says Mockingbird 2.0, question mark. Operation Mockingbird, of course, being the CIA operation to influence the press. Okay. I'm not going to read the whole article. It's a long article, but you should read it if you're interested. I'll put a link. All right, let's just start with this. Um just so you know, TikTok's app has about 70 million U.S. users. Um, and it says here, the White House is keenly aware of its impact. Of course, he's going to quote uh, Joe Biden's director of digital strategy, who recently told 30 TikTok influencers, 30 of the top influencers, quote, we recognize this is a critically important avenue in the way the American public is finding out about the latest so we wanted to make sure you had the latest information 
from an authoritative source. Now, this is this is in relation to COVID. Remember, they had that meeting with influencers about COVID and how to talk about, or no, was it COVID? No, it was the Ukraine war. It was the Ukraine war, sorry. And they had meetings with influencers. Here's how to, here's here's what to say about the war. Um, okay. Also, I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to say it again just so you really understand. I know a lot of you know that TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. ByteDance is the name. Um, I'm going to read this sentence. Although TikTok is a Chinese company, it is, ironically, completely blocked inside China. Their domestic market being served by a sister app, Douyin, which functions in a similar way, but is separated by the Great Firewall. Actually, it doesn't, and it says there's no contact between the two. It actually doesn't function in exactly the same way, though. As I've mentioned before, it's curated to make sure stupidity doesn't rise to the top in, like, interesting short videos about engineering or educational or, like, engaging stuff rises to the top. And it also, they turn their servers off at night so kids can't not do homework and play on their TikTok version. They have to go do something productive. They're running a tax farm. They know how to do it. Uh, they need their cattle, you know, intellectually strong. So if you recall, Trump wanted TikTok to be owned by an American company. He he and he, I don't know if you remember, he he tried to issue an order saying they had to get purchased and, and you know, he wanted the servers in America, all this stuff. ByteDance first reached a deal to sell TikTok to Microsoft, then to Oracle and Walmart. Yet the new Biden administration, without explanation, quietly dropped the sale requirement indefinitely in early 2021, saying in a court filing that had it had begun a review of security concerns cited by the Trump administration. So, by the way, I disagree with Trump's thing. I don't think he should be getting involved in this stuff, but... Uh, he saw a real problem in the Biden administration. It's kind of saying like, yeah, we see the problem, but we're dropping this requirement. Okay, why? Because you guys have no qualms about, I mean, I might have qualms about regulating businesses and getting involved and forcing them to do stuff, but you guys don't. So why? Why are you dropping this? Says so that decision left buyers and onlookers perplexed. Of course. Now we get into the next section, the important section which is headlined, High-Placed NATO Recruits. This is the record scratch. Right? What? Since 2020, there's been a wave of former spooks, spies, and mandarins appointed to influential positions within TikTok, particularly around content and policy, some of whom on paper, at least, appear unqualified for such roles. So ByteDance was ordered to sell TikTok. Now, so since 2020, I don't know how early, but maybe after the election, I don't know. Um, but ByteDance is like, hmm, I don't want to sell TikTok. What can we do to appease these? I'm making this part up. I'm guessing. What can we do to appease these, these guys in Washington? How about this? Let's read some people uh, who joined For example, while simultaneously being the content policy lead for TikTok Canada, Alexander Corbeil is also the vice president of the NATO Association of Canada, a NATO-funded organization chaired 
by former Canadian Minister of Defence, David Colonnette. In order to join TikTok, Corbyn left his job at SecDev Foundation, a U.S. State Department-funded security think tank. Another NATO-linked new recruit is Aisha Kosak, a global product policy manager at the company. Before joining TikTok last year, she spent three years at NATO. Like Corbyn, Kosak had special expertise in Middle Eastern politics, including a year's tour in Iraq. Ford Copeland, who works on TikTok's trust and safety policy, is also an ex-NATO man. Man, I mean... Seems like NATO is just uh, breeding them for you, aren't they? They're just churning out people really important in the social media space. Um, Copeland previously worked as a desk officer for NATO as well as a Department of Defense. Between 2011 and 2021, he also worked for U.S. contractor Development Alternatives Incorporated, spending much of that time in Afghanistan. Development Alternatives Incorporated has long been accused of being a CIA front group, perhaps with some justification. In, 20, in 2009, for example, DAI, that's the name of the company, DIA agent Alan Gross was arrested in Cuba and sentenced to 15 years in prison for spying, espionage, and his part in efforts to destabilize the government. Okay. So maybe, maybe a CIA front group. Perhaps the most worrying NATO alumnus, from a public perspective, is new feature policy manager... Greg Anderson. I love these titles. Global Product Policy Manager, Feature Policy Manager, right. um, Content Policy Lead, Trust and Safety Policy. It's all policy, policy, policy. A lot of people involved in policy for TikTok in North America. Um, anyway, the new Feature Policy Manager, Greg Anderson. According to his own LinkedIn profile, until 2019, Anderson worked on, quote, Psychological operations for NATO. In fact, according to Mint Press contributor Loki, was removed. Oh, this fact was removed. He removed it from his LinkedIn profile after they tweeted about it. Found out, and he was like, oh, I'm removing that. Now it doesn't say. But there's a screenshot, of course. Next heading. Not just NATO. You don't say, huh? The company's new global lead of integrity and authenticity. Chris Roberts is a former senior director of technology policy at the Albright Stone Ridge Group, a powerhouse strategy and consulting firm started by late Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. The ASG has been perhaps the major staffing source for President Biden's administration, with at least 10 ASG employees appointed to key positions in national security, state, and foreign policy relations. Before ASG, ASG Roberts worked in his own words, on, quote, special projects for the National Democratic Institute. NDI was founded by the Reagan administration after a series of CIA scandals, necessitated, CIA scandals necessitated the creation of a network of front groups to take the heat off the agency. The NDI exists to channel U.S. government money, training, and support to political and social groups around the world. This could charitably be described as a democracy promotion, although cynics might label it an overthrowing governments. As Roberts said himself, the nature of democracy promotion is that the most important countries to work in are the ones where the government may not want your help. Sure, I get that, man. So, so he's now in charge of uh, global lead of integrity and authenticity. 
<laughs> really? Um, his role is to, quote, lead the integrity and authenticity policy team. This team covers misinformation. Hmm. Synthetic and manipulated media. Hmm. Covert influence activity and spam and inauthentic engagement. Ah, well, trust the CIA to do that. Um, one group infamous for peddling misinformation and carrying out covert operations is the CIA. Yet rather than identifying operations they might be conducting, TikTok has instead recruited a former agent to serve as an important position. Since January, Bo Patterson has been working as a threat analyst for TikTok's Trust and Safety Division. He's seen 2017 and 2020. However, Patterson was a targeting analyst for the CIA, after which he joined the State Department to become a Foreign Service Officer. Okay. Nothing to see here. One step closer to the halls of power is Vic Victoria McCullough, who previously worked for the Department of Homeland Security and for the White House staff itself, like Patterson. McCullough now works on trust and safety. <laughs> Guys, can you come up with another name? Trust and safety is just like just the Ministry of Truth. Uh, another trust and safety TikTok staff member, Christian Cardona, spent nearly 13 years in senior roles at the State Department. <laughs> it's like unbelievable. Virtually every former spook or state official this investigation found works in very specific and highly politically sensitive fields such as trust, safety, and content moderation, rather than in banal areas like marketing, customer service, or sales. This article goes on. I mean, there's a lot here. Um, there's a whole section called Surveillance Valley. It talks about the Atlantic Council, uh, which Facebook pretends is independent so they don't they have them do stuff instead of themselves and then there's a section at the end called mockingbird 2.0 if you want to read i don't have a lot to say about this because i think this article speaks for itself um <clears throat> this is how let's just review <clears throat> what happens government threatens to f up your business you place government operatives in your business in positions of power, thereby easing any concerns. You get to keep your business. Welcome. Welcome to capitalism? No, that's not. I think there's another word for it. I don't think it's capitalism. Is it fascism? It might be the word. Might be fascism. Hey, John Della Rose. Good evening. John's in chat. I should be done, John, but I'm not. I'm not even done. Um, maybe I should send John. Should I? Should I have John come on the show? He'd just make it fun. This show's not about fun. If you want to come on the show, John, let me know. I'll send you a link. Last thing, I think the last thing I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm like, I, I could end. Should we talk about transhumanism? John says, do you want me to drive over there? <laughs> By the time you drive here, John, it'll be, it'll be over. It'll be over. Um, okay. Should we talk about transhumanism? We should talk about, let's talk about it a little bit. Um, someone sent me this article. Uh, this article is from Singularity Weekly. It's called Elon Musk and the Transhuman Wing of Conservative Incorporated. 
The subtitle is, if you take this guy seriously, you're living in a simulation, and it's by a guy named Joe Allen. Now, I went and read... <laughs> John says, is training humanism like Nick Fuentes with cat ears? Uh, yes. Yes, it is. Um, so he sent me this article. and You guys aren't going to like what I have to say about this, I, I think. that's. But he sent me this article it's by a guy named Joe Allen. I ended up reading a bunch of other stuff Joe Allen wrote. Um, cause I was, it, I, I went down this little rabbit hole of, I wanted to understand the mentality here. Uh, and, um, yeah, I'm not going to, well, maybe I'll go through this article a little bit. I'll, I'll go through a little spots of it. So, so he starts out, if you take this guy seriously, you're living in a simulation. So it's snarky right away. Like, I don't know what take this guy seriously means, right? I take Elon Musk seriously. He's the richest man in the world. Uh, if he wants to do something, he can often get it done. He's a pretty serious individual in that sense. I'm not sure what you mean. Like, are we not supposed to take him seriously? Who do we take seriously? If we don't take, <laughs> if we don't take a guy who owns several companies and is a billionaire seriously, like, what do we? Why should I take you seriously? You're writing articles on the internet. Like, I don't understand what that even means. Um, I think what he means though is something slightly different, which is like. Don't trust him. He's part of this elite cabal of weirdos. I think, I think that's what he means. <clears throat> All right. He well, this is we'll go through it and I'll comment as we go through it. Elon Musk holds out the promise of restoring quote free speech to Twitter. Yesterday, the Tesla this is written on April 15th. Yesterday, the Tesla CEO offered $43 billion to buy the social media platform outright. Conservatives are intoxicated by the idea. The language here. Uh, if they're intoxicated, they're stupid and drunk. If by some miracle the shareholders take the offer, uh, Musk promises to relax speech policing and make the algorithms open source. Now, we now know that obviously it looks like it hasn't been consummated, but it looks like it is going to happen. Presumably, he'll con continue shit posting from his toilet. And there's a link, I guess. He shit posted from his toilet, I guess, at some point. If we take Musk at his word, his intention is to open real debate and save our democracy. Then again, he also told us China rocks, robot slaves will replace every worker, universal, universal basic income will soon be necessary, all vehicles will be autonomous, AI will achieve a godlike status, brain implants will connect us to that god, and ultimately, there's a billion to one chance that our system is just a computer simulation. A cynical listener might suspect the cyborg car dealer is taking the public for a ride. Okay. Um, this is just, a, I mean, we can walk through these things. What Elon has said, because this guy also links to sources, so he, he can watch like what Elon said about China. This, this guy conflates... Description with approval, right? Um, so, for example, he, he says, now we're, this is Elon, now we're heading towards a situation where China is going to be probably having an economy two or three times the size of the United States. And so that's just a different world. Other countries are not really a threat to you if you're by far the biggest kid on the block. And then this author's like, imagine what Chinese dominance means for, quote, freedom in the world. 
he's not endorsing China. And he says, aside from a quick disclaimer that he doesn't endorse everything China does, or equivocally, everything the U.S. does. Musk has less to say about China's totalitarian lockdowns and re-education camps than an NBA star and a fresh pair of Nikes. If Musk has anything like a moral compass, an attentive listener would be hard-pressed to say which way the needle's pointing. Look, I just I think this is dishonest report. I, it's just dishonest. Uh, China is going to become huge. They're running a great tax farm. Our tax farm is falling apart. Their tax farm is running great. Is it moral? Hell no. Is he out saying a bunch of crap about China? No. Like, does he have to say everything about everything all the time? Like, I just don't, I don't understand why he has to, like, why is that the standard? Right? Okay. Let's just go through this list. So he he talks about China. He accuses, he says robot slaves will replace every worker and universal income will be soon be necessary. Soon is a is a is a weird thing. What what Elon Musk has said, which is correct, he is a futurist, and this is correct. Again, I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff I don't like about Elon. I'm just I don't like people just want to have these supervillains. They want to pretend that like there's these supervillains. He's just a dude who's smart doing some shit and doesn't have his philosophy completely straight, but better than AOCs. Like that's who he is. He's not a god. He's not a savior. And he's not an evil supervillain. So this guy's like, oh, he's saying robots will take over. Yeah, because he knows that that's true. Robots will eventually do almost all of our work. That will happen. The guy can see, anyone can see, as AI develops, and what we call AI isn't actually intelligence, but whatever, as machine learning develops and as robotics develop, we will have more and more stuff done by automation. We've been, that's been the case. And it's going to continue to be the case. And eventually, this is like, it doesn't matter what you think about the morality of it, or whether you like it or not. He's predicting that that will happen. Yes, that will happen, right? It'll happen. And I don't agree with universal basic income, but the context in which he said that was, look, he was saying eventually, this is his, and again, this is just a prediction. This isn't his saying, this is the way, this is moral and lovely and everything about it is great. I don't know what he thinks about it, but he made predictions and he said, look, uh, Things are going to get cheaper and cheaper because they're going to be made by machines and automated, which has been true, by the way. The more we've automated, the cheaper things get. That's true. So assuming that continues, things will get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and goods will become cheaper and people won't need to work like people need to work less and less and less over time to get the things they want because things will be cheaper and they'll have to put in less labor and blah, blah, blah. And, and eventually... I'm not a fan of universal basic income, but eventually he was kind of like envisioning Star Trek, right? Kind of like where, well, you know, there's a replicator and like everything is taking for like, that's what he's envisioning. You don't, you don't yell at Gene Roddenberry for like, how dare you? Like, you know, he's envisioning a future that's very far advanced. Like he might be underestimating how long it will take, but He's throwing out these like things as scare things like, oh, he said nice things about China. He just said truth about China. It's going to be big, right? Oh, he said things about automation. Like, yeah, he said those things, right? He's not saying 
I hate humans and want robots to replace them all. In fact, he said the opposite. Uh, all right. AI will achieve godlike status. I don't actually know what that's referring to. Brain implants will connect us. Now, granted, he does. he's into that kind of stuff. Um, and there's a billion and one chance our universe is just a computer simulation. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, idle metaphysical speculation happening in the uh, futurist tech world. No one's acting on it. He's not saying we might be in the matrix, therefore we should all just do whatever we want and nothing matters. He's like, yeah, it could be whatever. It's idle speculation. It's unprovable. It's been happening in philosophy for since Plato. It's stupid. It is there's no false, uh, there's like, there, there's no, um, uh, there's no way to disprove it, right? It's, it's arbitrary speculation. It's why people think philosophy is stupid because, because philosophers have run around and say crap like that all the time. What if, what if we're actually just bringing it a jar? Yeah. Okay. So he does that too. I'm like, you know, he's not perfect. He's not near perfect. He's just a rich guy who has some ideas who happen to be better ideas than many of the elites. That's all. Um, so anyway, he, he says, okay, the excitement for Twitter is, is actually understandable because he might actually make it better. Okay. That's good. Um, and he, and he goes on to quote, uh, he, he acts like his, his, his quotes about China are somehow undermine his caring about democracy. Like, Nope. He, didn't say China was great. He just said they were going to be big. Um, at a TED conference yesterday, Musk laughed that it's, quote, probably inevitable his optimist buddy robot will be used as a quasi-sentient sex slave when confronted with the possibility that these lanky droids will rapidly replace human labor. He reassured the working class. I wouldn't worry about the sort of people putting putting people out of a job. This really will be a world of abundance. This is what he's imagining. He's imagining Star Trek. This will be a world of abundance. Any goods and services will be available to anyone who wants them. It'll be so cheap to have goods and services. It'll be ridiculous. That's his vision. Is he right? I don't know. But th that doesn't that doesn't make him an evil supervillain, right? And this guy writes, indeed, nothing could be more ridiculous. No. That's not ridiculous. That's what automation has been doing since we've started automating, making things cheaper and cheaper and more abundant. That's how our standard, that's not ridiculous, dude. That's how it works. You're just calling it ridiculous. That's, you don't, there's no argument here. You're just, it, it, this is almost a mystically religious article, like technology bad. And he admits to being a Luddite. So I think that's why he's like this, but like, okay. Um, he quotes Elon on some AI stuff. It's not exactly uh, necessary. Um, so, you know, he he says, he, he talks about labor being less and less necessary. He says, I try my hard. I love humanity, and I think that we should fight for a good future for humanity, and I think we should be optimistic about the future and fight to make that optimistic future happen. Like, yeah, I mean, I look... I, I don't know. I, I don't even feel like reading the rest of this. I, look, I, I'll just say my transhuman stuff generally. First of all, obviously we don't. We shouldn't worship Elon Musk. Obviously, we shouldn't think he's the savior. He's just a dude. He's like a, he's a rich dude who happens to be smart and successful. He's got a lot of good qualities. He's got some things wrong. He has horrible taste in women. Clearly, uh, 
he like gets a lot of things wrong. Like he that okay, but the guy's not Bill Gates. He's not AOC. Like he he, he like he's like hey well I don't you know, he, I mean the guy talks about democracy being important. Obviously I don't think democracy is. I think democracy is horrible. It's tyranny of the majority. I think there's nuance there and stuff that he hasn't thought about or whatever. Like I think he's wrong about that, but. He's not the only one who's talking about democracy. At least he's trying to say like, oh, but I think this freedom of speech thing is important. That's good. So I don't understand why we have to vilify people like this. But more importantly, what I get from this and from a bunch of other articles is this weird anti-transhumanism thing. And it's, there's this view that humans in their current form are sacred. Uh, that like we can't, you can't touch anything about how humans, the minute you start, start talking about like, Oh, we're gonna like put a, an implant to do this or whatever. Now, look, I'm not about implants. That the government, like, I'm not about government implants. Just like, don't get me wrong, I, I'm against all of that. But there's this view that that humans are kind of sacred, um, in their in their naked form. Um, and look, I'm a human worshiper in many ways. Like, yes, I think they're special <laughs> compared to other animals and all this. Like, yeah, humans are awesome. I care much more about humans than I do about dogs or any other animals on, on the planet. Um, but all technology is a form of transition is transhumanism in some way. Like we, we are adapting the environment to us. And in many cases we're adapting ourselves. We, we develop technology to, uh, you know, uh, we take drugs to fix problems. We, uh, put prosthetics on amputated limbs. We like, there's a bunch of stuff that we do. We have glasses. Is this transhumanism? I'm, I'm not actually, I don't know. I got glasses on. I'm wearing clothes. I'm not actually, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a modified human, right? Like this idea that, um, that modifying humans is somehow by itself wrong that that modifying humans for their own benefit like for something they want that they view to make their lives better the glasses make my life better if i could get cyborg eye implants that made me see better i might do it i wouldn't if they were connected to google right but like there's things that i would but that make me transhuman i don't know right reason is our primary means of survival we are our consciousness that's what we really are Right. I'm no less me. If I lose my left arm and have a prosthetic, I'm not less me. If I lose my consciousness, yeah, then I'm dead. Right. Um, but everything around that is uh you know, it's 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 part of me. It's part of me, but it's not there's no sacred nature about not not replacing it if it's broken or can be upgraded. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with that. You might not like it. You might feel weird about it. I get that. I feel weird about a lot of that stuff, right? But technology always can be used for good or for bad, always, right? You can you can extract iron and build plows or swords, right? You can split the atom and provide clean energy or blow up Hiroshima. Like there's technology can be used for good things. And I think 
the the situation let me explain why i think we're in the situation we're in where we're having a luddite reaction to stuff it's because technology is being used for evil we see it being used for evil we see that it's going to be used for evil and therefore we oppose it which i totally understand i'm terrified of the chinese social credit system right i don't want that here i don't like all the stupid cameras and facial recognition stuff i don't want like i'm angry that they put chips in passports like I'm opposed to all of that, right? I, so that's what we see, and we're we're afraid of that. But I want to, and rightly so, we should push back on that. But I think the situation that we're in right now is technology has surpassed philosophy by a few hundred years. Because um, he, here's what happened. The Enlightenment, there's bad ideas mixed in the, with the Enlightenment. Remember, the Enlightenment's not 100% like all great, great sauce, right? There's a lot of crap. Marxism came out of the Enlightenment, right? There's a lot of crap in the Enlightenment. But the Enlightenment proposed a rational metaphysics and epistemology. Like a lot of what science is built on was this idea that the world is discoverable, it is real, we can use reason to understand it. Science took that metaphysics and epistemology and ran with it 100%. Scientists, even bad scientists today, don't like use mysticism and astrology to make decisions they use the scientific method they use reason there's like there's a a rational metaphysics and epistemology i mean even the people working with quantum mechanics will recognize if you ask them about it it's a model we don't really understand what's going on we have to pretend that there's wave particle duality and other stuff but we don't really know right it's just that the stuff that seems unreal is just a model to explain behavior we see, but it's the behavior that we see that trumps everything. It's the observation that trumps everything, right? We we view it and we use reason and we sometimes we come up with models that kind of make no sense, but they kind of are working. But like science went with reason and rational epistemology and science doesn't have anything to do with ethics or politics. Maybe you argue that the individual scientists should be better, yes, but... Science as a subject is not ethics and politics aren't part of of science. What they're part of is humanities. What they're part of is philosophy. And the scientists took those good parts of the Enlightenment and went and built beautiful things. We have, I mean, the standard of living that we have now is astronomically better than it was several hundred, just a few hundred years ago, right? They went off and built awesome things. Some of those things, you know, they also built some bad things, whatever, but they built some great things. This conversation is because of, you know, we can have this conversation because of science, because they ran with good metaphysics and epistemology. They stopped turning to astrology for answers about things and started doing experiments and using reason, right? And developing a scientific method. But the humanities people, the philosophers, they didn't do the same thing. They didn't take rational metaphysics and epistemology and say, great, how do we use them for ethics and politics? How do we have a rational ethical system, which, by the way, turns out to be individualism? How do we have a rational ethical system? How do we have a rational political? They didn't do that. I mean, some of them tried. The Founding Fathers tried a little bit. But, like, didn't for the most part, they didn't do that. They, they proceeded to go into universities, and they followed Kant, who explicitly wanted to save non-rational epistemology from rational. He was afraid 
of the parts of the Enlightenment that the scientists have gone and run with and created and, and technologists have run with created stuff. He was afraid of that. He was afraid of what it would do to morals, which in the church and duty and the state, he, it doesn't go well for the state, by the way. He's right to be afraid. And so he tried to defend this and he defended it with arbitrary assertions and with a bunch of crap that actually made no sense. But he he defended it by undermining metaphysics and undermining epistemology. You can't use Kantian metaphysics and epistemology to build a computer, right? He undermined those things. Many philosophers after him have been, I mean, they started, they just built on it and built on it, got worse and worse and worse. And you get to postmodernism where they're not sure if anything exists and it's navel gazing and crazy. It's absolute insanity. And so the foundation that the technologists and scientists ran with was solid. And the foundation that the humanities and, and philosophers ran with, they, they rejected that solid foundation. They intentionally corrupted it and then ran with it. And so what we have is we have amazing tech tools in the hands of philosophical barbarians. That's the problem. Their job, the job of the philosophers was to do the same thing. So that when we got to this point, technologically, we would know what to do and what not to do. We would be using technology responsibly. We would be behaving responsibly with these tremendous weapons that we've been given, these tools. Instead, we're using these tools to beat each other over the head and do horrible things. And the tools are going to go keep on developing because it's clear how to develop the tools. You can't stop it. The technologists... And the scientists, all they have to do is keep following rational metaphysics and epistemology, and they'll get there. But we're floundering over here with a bunch of crap philosophy, and it's not caught up. So it's literally like we're, we're arming savages. We're savages. Like, ethically. We're ethical savages, and we're arming ethical savages with, you know, nuclear weapons and lightsabers and cool shit. It's not going to go well. That's the thing to be worried about. Not about, it's not to be like these damn technologists inventing things. Like, A, you really can't stop that, right? But B, they're not fundamentally the problem, right? The problem isn't that Elon Musk is like inventing stuff or wants to invent stuff. The problem is the environment in which he's doing it is horrible. It's ethically disgusting. It's a trash heap of ethics. And he has these Pollyanna views about how things can be used. I think the biggest criticism of him is that he's Pollyanna. That he he's not saying, yeah, well, for everything that's good about this, we have these horrible, horrible people who are in charge with a bunch of zombies that are following them because they've had weaponized empathy and they've been de they've been neutered their brains been neutered in school wielding these weapons that's going to be the problem wielding this tech is these horrible people i think if you want to criticize him that's what the criticism is he's too pollyanna about this he doesn't see that what really needs to be solved is is this is the problem of philosophy which isn't impossible there's answers to it but we don't care because the people in charge only care like to the end of their life. They just want more power. They don't care about the you know, humanities be damned to them. They don't care. They just want to stay in power. So it's the humanities that failed, not the technologist.
not the technology people. And the problem isn't that we want to build AI or that we can build AI or that we're going to build AI. The problem is that the leaders think Skynet is a good implementation. They think Skynet is a good thing to do with AI. That's the problem, right? Developing AI that does wonderful things for us and helps our life, that's great. Developing AI that wants to start a, a, a war and eliminate humans, that's bad, right? And we don't have, we don't even know how, we argue over the ethics of AI because we were so confused about ethics. We don't even know what to program. And if, and I'm telling you, the risk for AI is programming some stupid ethical system into a powerful AI that's based off of collectivism. Because the minute that happens, we're dead. Because collectivism is, is death. And the AI will just, you know, follow that path. So the, the, the fear here should not be about tech. It shouldn't be like Elon Musk is a villain. Elon Musk's just a technologist doing his thing. The villains are the philosophers and the university professors and the politicians and the establishment and the elite who all are pushing really, really bad philosophy. They're pushing collectivism. They're pushing bad ethics. And they're all doing it because they want power. That's the problem. It's the power-hungry, amoral or immoral people that are the problem. Not the guy building AI and building cars. He's not the problem. Because if it's not him, it'll be someone else. He's not the only guy building electric cars. He's not the only guy building AI. He's not the only guy building anything. He's got competitors in every field. And he always will. All right. I think we should end it. It's been an hour and a half or two hours and a half, guys. Um, so I think we should end it. But if you have any final questions or things I need to say or yell at me in some way, put it in chat. I will look. Um, I will look and respond. But uh, I appreciate you sticking with me for this whole time. In the meantime, before before we wrap it up, thank you all for watching. Um, a special thanks to those of you who support us financially. We do actually need money to keep doing this. Um, not that I get paid, but sometimes I do have to pay people. Uh, so you can join us at uh, unsafespace.com. You can sign up. You get your name in the credits. You get to join Discord, which we might actually uh, upgrade or add on um, Gilded because Discord's had some censorship issues. It's not a great platform for us to be. Um, but anyway, please do that if you can. You can get you know, throw fiat at us. You can throw Bitcoin or whatever. Um, and as I, as I said before... Um, I always love topics, suggestions, feedback, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think tomorrow night, Token Minority Report is on a new time. Um, it was kind of an odd show to have on, on Friday morning, so it's moving to Thursday evenings. Uh, I don't remember exactly the time, and I don't think Beverly's in chat. But if she is, she can tell you what time it is. But it's Thursday evening. Uh, it's We'll probably tweet and everything else about it so you can find it. If you want to see Token Minority Report, go do that. I don't see anything I need to do in, in chat. So thank you again for watching. I really appreciate you guys sticking around. I know the show was long. But, um, yeah, I also appreciate the uh, the interactivity, the questions and all that kind of stuff. I'd like to do more of that. So, like I said, if you've got stuff you want me to talk about, uh, argue with me. Um, do that as well. Uh, so uh, happy, happy to do that. And... Beverly is saying 7 p.m. Eastern. That's when that's when it is tomorrow. So if you want to see Token Minority Report, go do that. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a good evening. 
And I will see you on Monday for Narrative Dissonance. And you'll see Beverly tomorrow night. Take care. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may be upsetting to Brian Stelter. Please do not expose him to it. For completely legitimate reasons. Taylor Lawrence is requesting any information you may have about the following individuals. The Twitter subroutine appears to be malfunctioning. Pay no attention to it. Did you know that the word liberty is a dog whistle for insurrectionists? If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.